0: Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode six. Today, I am joined by Blake Harris. Blake is an old friend of mine from high school uh, who has gone on to be a super successful writer and filmmaker. Um, His best-selling book, Console Wars, is now being made into not just one, but two movies Uh, There is a documentary which Blake is co-directing and also a feature film being produced by Scott Rudin who did like Moneyball and uh, Seth Rogen might have heard of him and his partner Evan Goldberg pretty insane Uh, and uh, Blake is an executive producer on that film as well. Uh, He also writes for Paul Shear's How Did This Get Made series, which is a podcast where basically they uh, talk about bad movies and uh, ask the question, how did this get made? Blake actually goes and interviews the people that made those movies and quite literally tries to find out how did this get made? Uh, He's also working on a new book right now, a follow up to Console Wars which is um, investigating the wonderful world of virtual reality. And he has really sort of unprecedented access to the biggest VR companies in the world, including Oculus inside Facebook. And uh, very interesting time to be following all that. Console Wars, if you haven't read it, awesome, entertaining. And basically follows the trajectory of Sega in the 90s as it came up against the powerhouse of Nintendo. And so if you were born in the 80s like I was growing up in the 90s and having this sort of war uh, between Nintendo and Sega that I just sort of took for granted um, and never really thought, of course, as a kid who are these two companies? What are they doing? How are they competing? The book goes into that story and it is really a wild story and uh unbelievable how much research as I learned in this interview Blake had to do and the most amazing thing is that he had never written a book before and never really done investigative journalism or any of the things you think that one would need to do this. He was just really interested in the topic about Sega and Nintendo and wanted to learn about it himself. And that sort of led him down the path of creating this book, um, which is pretty amazing. Talking to Blake was uh, really a pleasure. His story was so interesting. um, And the parallels to other sorts of entrepreneurship, obviously, I talk mostly about tech startups uh, on this podcast, In a way, he is a writing startup, uh, for lack of a better term, and seems like the rules of the road are pretty similar uh, no matter what sort of entrepreneurship you're pursuing and the way that he approaches it and networks and just makes things happen is truly admirable. Uh, We also get into some pretty out-there topics around VR Of everyone I know, he might know the most about VR. And so really trying to understand where that is going to take us, not just in the short term, but long term and what it means to sort of be living in a virtual or uh, mixed reality. We also go down a rabbit hole about fake news and how different versions of reality are already happening uh, today, even before there is sort of proper vr at mass scale we talk about twitter and why are people so angry we get into some really fascinating topics just around quote president trump might actually be right about fake news close quote Uh, and why quotes like that taken out of context can be very dangerous But today we essentially live in a world of quotes without context. And we talk about how that really starts to deteriorate what reality is uh, and the intersections of sort of fake reality uh, via fake news and fake reality versus technology like VR uh, could have some very significant consequences. Quick note, in case you don't listen all the way to the end, where I will say the same thing, please subscribe if you haven't already to this podcast so you will be alerted to new episodes. I've got some incredible guests coming up over the coming weeks and months, and I want you to know when they come out so you can listen. Also, feel free to tell your friends if you enjoy listening and help get the word out. This ended up being My longest podcast to date. We sat down uh, expecting just to talk for an hour and it ended up going uh, well past that. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Buckle in. And uh, this is Blake Harris, author of Console Wars on the Wizards Podcast. (laughs) So uh, welcome to our little studio here.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it, it's funny because um, I'm curious to know how you sort of introduce yourself normally, because I would say, you know, this is Blake Harris, he's a, a writer, but somehow it seems like that doesn't cover it. So how do you sort of identify yourself in, in that respect?
1: No, I re- that really does cover it to me. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the things I have my hand in, but I love th- that idea of writer. I think that's what I bring to everything I do. You know, it's storytelling, but I love the process of selecting the words and framing narratives and all that stuff. And I don't know, I always like loved in, um, what was it? The Fountainhead with Howard Rourke, architect. I liked Blake Harris, or Blake J. Harris. Uh-huh. Right? Um, but, you know, for the listeners, a little bit of background. I wrote a book called Console Wars about the battle between Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s. It's a behind-the-scenes business thriller uh, that was published by HarperCollins in 2014. It is also being made into a movie at Sony right now. And I also, um, after that, I started working with the uh, comedian Paul Scheer and his How Did This Get Made podcast to do behind-the-scenes interviews and stories with the filmmakers responsible for some of the worst movies ever made. And, uh, and currently I'm working on a new book that's kind of like Console Wars, another character-driven, behind-the-scenes business story, uh, this time about virtual reality and sort of this uh, virtual reality revolution that we're witnessing the beginning of right now.
0: So I had it right, writer. Yes, <laughs> so. correct. And then, of course,
1: also... Um, you know, I'll say uh, Blake Harris, Horace Greeley, Horace Greeley class of two thousand one. We, uh, we, for the listeners to know, you know, we grew up together in the wonderful hamlet of Chappaqua.
0: Madame Baker's French class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's where we got to know each other, I believe.
1: Okay. Yeah, so we've known each other a while, and uh, I'm very happy to track your progress and success over the years, and I'm happy to finally chat with you about tech. And startups and whatever random mischief we get into. Yeah.
0: Likewise, it's uh, it's funny to sort of check in with people after you know long periods of time um, and sort of get snapshots of of what happens. And so for me, you know, uh, I'm curious about the the sort of path you took because I know it's not. Um, I doubt when you were at Greeley, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> you were thinking, I know, I'm going to grow up and be uh, an author who writes business thrillers about technology companies. Uh, so,
1: Yeah, absolutely I- not. I actually remember distinctly, not even from a writing perspective, but distinctly being on the quad or whatever the grass area <laughs> yeah, Our yeah. school was called with uh, a friend, Maddie, and oh yeah. Him and I only read fiction back then. I didn't read nonfiction. And he said that that his dad told him his dad, who's a publisher, um, said that oh you know, f- fiction's what you read when you're younger, nonfiction's what you read when you're older. And I remember like defiantly saying like No, I'll never read nonfiction. Right, I'll never, I'll never read nonfiction. <laughs> and now that's mostly all I read. Yeah, I was I'd gonna read. say that's
0: sort of a depressing like truth,
1: in a way,
2: because it's true. Right. My experience
0: is true. Uh, I read. A, almost exclusively nonfiction now, but I didn't like purposefully try to do that. It just sort of happened.
1: Yeah. I wonder why it happens. Um, I think that, you know, as we get older and are not kids and adults and have to fend for ourselves and explore the world, like there's almost um, always an inspirational tale or a cautionary tale in reading about nonfiction stuff. Um, and then I, I do think part of it too, is just like <laughs> the risk, like, I've read so many fiction books that are not good, but I've rarely read a nonfiction book it's that's terrible. an interesting like, observation. Terrible. Like, you know, it, like I, it, it kind of has to do with like the credibility of the author. I was going
0: like, to say, isn't there always sort of like a... I feel like you evaluate stories differently when it was a real story. Like if you're reading a fiction book and it ends up that it was sort of mundane, you're like, well, I can't believe this is the best this person could make up. But then <laughs> when you're reading nonfiction and it seems like something crazy is happening. You're like, I can't believe this really happened. And it could actually be the same story, but presented to you one way or the other could, could maybe skew. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the stories that you write about, a lot of them read like fiction. I mean, that's the goal. You yeah. Know, uh, because I told you
1: before we started the show that my mentality for all my writing um, is always, how can I get my grandmother to care about this? And, you know, whether it's a bad movie director or whether it's um the video game industry or your grandma more of
0: a Nintendo person (laughs) or a Sega person
1: uh she was more of the like pick one thing that you want for Hanukkah and I'll try (laughs) and grandpa and I'll try to get it for you and that was the extent of her knowledge about video games but I you know I think that that's um important I think it's a very helpful goal to me um because it also makes me boil down what I'm writing to kind of the essence of it like why is this important what is the central idea here or what are the conflicting ideas here or why is this um why am i writing about this what's at stake what does this show us it, it's
0: so interesting that you frame it this way because i take the exact same approach i i think of it um and this is no disrespect to any grandmas out there but i think of it more like uh, like a fifth grader but it's it's the same mentality it's like mm-hmm. how could i explain this to a fifth grader, um, or maybe even a second grader. And what's funny is that in the end, of course, you're not, you, the people that end up liking the things you write are not grandmas. So, right. you know, as I could imagine someone saying, well, it, with that approach, it's gonna be too simplistic, it's gonna be too rudimentary. But I found that it's almost impossible to be too simplistic or too rudimentary when telling a story. And I don't tell the same sorts of stories you do, but even when I teach or um, this morning, I did a, a UX session for some marketing folks at Air France. And, and, but they didn't, these are novices in user experience design. And so if I were to p- sort of say that to another UX designer, they'd be like, what? You should not definitely not present it this way. It's way too rudimentary. Right. But it's not. I've never, I've never ever found the the where i've gotten too low with almost any audience
1: i think that's a good observation i think it also has to do with um the danger is like you go maybe there is no too low it's just a matter of being condescending like mm. if it's so you want to be
0: simplistic like you don't want to
1: baby your audience no no you don't want to be
0: patronizing at all right it, it's the opposite it's more like um, but,
1: but what i kind of find is that um if i if i write um something that it, you know, maybe feels a little bit, um, you know, like if I was writing about, um, oh, and then this character tweeted something, Twitter is this website that's, devoted. yeah, right. Like, so, you know, to make
0: some assumptions, like
1: right. I wouldn't do it like that, but even in like the better version of that, people who already know what Twitter is, which is almost everyone, um, that's maybe not a great example, but they 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 think, oh, I already know this, so I like, I feel. Yeah, smart. Oh, that's so, interesting.
0: They feel empowered. Yeah. I think about that with acronyms or sort of industry jargon. It's always better to define it. And then, right, if someone already knows, they're like, well, I knew
1: that. Yeah, you can just kind of go um, over it. And then I'm in, like, the luxurious position that you're not in where, um, like you said, jargon, a, a really big part of any company is kind of this unique culture that feels um, special and, and specific unto itself. So if I can capture that in the way people are talking or just setting up a visual, and then I maybe pull out of it almost like a film and give you some background, you already feel like, all right, I'm in the belly of the beast here. This is like an authentic experience. And this is just for the people who, don't, who for the grandmas out there who don't know. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: It's not to get sidetracked, but I want to back up to if you needed to define Twitter, <laughs> what would your definition be? I'm actually curious about that.
1: Oh, it's definitely the number one place for people to get angry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's their slogan. Is not it? get angry? Yeah, get Uh, angry.
1: No, I guess I would say it's a, it's a website or a social media site that, um, gives a platform to every single person in the world to share their thoughts. It's just surprising that most people's thoughts tend to be getting angry and stuff.
0: Isn't it weird though, because with Twitter and, and we're both active Twitter users, um, and I think like most active Twitter users, I have a real love-hate relationship, which is mostly, it's love and um, frustration the way I imagined towards a child where it's like, you're not living up to your full potential, <laughs> but I love you so damn much, you know? Yeah. Uh, and like, um, it, it's actually hard to describe Twitter to someone that is not using Twitter. It's not that they've never heard of Twitter, is they understand conceptually what it is. But to actually summarize it and say like this is what Twitter is, I actually find that being a hard thing to do. Um, and so one way I was thinking about it recently was was it's almost like a public text messaging app or something. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you're just texting the whole world, you know. Uh, but you know, again, it, that like my brother doesn't use Twitter telling him it's a public text messaging app, he'd be like, uh, why would I want that? So yeah. it's 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 still not getting to the core of it. But I think it's crazy that essentially anyone can talk to the world, but also anyone can talk to anyone. I could tweet at a celebrity right now, and right. It's, it's at their discretion, but they could just write me back. I don't need to know their phone number or their email or their mailing right. address to do that.
1: Well, somebody um, last year said something to me that maybe it's very obvious but it, but it made an impression to me they said that you know facebook and twitter and i think this is especially true of twitter that you know these used to be social networks and now we call them social media mm. and it does kind of feel like twitter is very much more slanted towards the media angle it's it's people posting stories and then people responding to it uh, whereas facebook you still you know have you know more you personal it, more stuff. personal experiences yeah. and we'll see oh i'll see someone from that we went to high school with had a baby um and and you know i guess that format does make more sense why it would be like an echo chamber if it's just media and people reposting and liking the same media thing yeah or people getting angry at this you know gives you this underlying thing to respond to i'm not gonna uh you know get mad at one of our high school friends for having a baby and say like oh right. it's an ugly baby and, right right,
0: um, angry angry face on facebook yeah um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, obviously a lot of people use Twitter for their primary news consumption because of that. But I think a lot of people use Facebook for that, too. You know, uh, really? maybe not media I, savvy.
1: I have a lot of trouble with getting news on Facebook.
0: Well, news is a different story. But consuming. Yeah, I said news. But like, you know, there's, I think a lot of people, their primary source of media is Facebook, is things that other people post to facebook
1: that's probably true but maybe i just had bad experiences recently with facebook i what i love so much about twitter and there's also a lot i don't love about twitter but i do love that um that the posts are chronological it feels like there's some sort of um i don't even it's not a meritocracy but it's like a non-algorithmic experience and on facebook um i Maybe the algorithm just has a very don't really strange know what impression of me. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I see from the same few people the same sorts of articles, which is like pretty useless to me because I already, um, you know, I, if I'm interested in those topics, I can explore more on my own. And you know, Facebook does have a a setting where you can change the the news feed from algorithmic to most recent, and I changed that. Oh, that's literally every single day of my life, and then it defaults it back to the oh wow, regular so It's one. not like a because it does not it does not want it you doesn't to do keep that. you
0: on that setting.
1: And I and I think that's um, you know that's you're, pretty, you're sort of interesting. Um, an expert or someone who's very interested in user experience, and I find that kind of insulting to me. Like yeah, I, well, I, clearly
0: they are imposing their will and and picking a battle where they're saying even if this means a worse user experience it's in the name of them claiming i'm sure that they they know better than you what right. a good user experience would be obviously you have a right to agree or disagree with their
2: right, assessment
0: right. Uh, but that's that's pretty interesting with facebook also i think see i think the power of the retweet is something that was never really fully captured as you can reshare or whatever they call right, it to right. share on facebook but you really would only do that for something that you yourself would have shared anyway like oh this is a cool article i would like to share this with my friends i i wish i'd found it whereas on twitter i often share things that i disagree with completely you know you'll see in people's bios like retweet is not an endorsement but to me that's implied on twitter that so then,
1: but so then why do you retweet stuff that you disagree with because i find the same thing that because implied. i i guess that, i want I don't think to that's fair.
0: <laughs> i want to expose the people that that are following me on Twitter to the same sorts of things as if I found it interesting or shocking or uh, meaningful in some way good or bad then I would imagine that others would would want to be exposed to that same content
1: no, it's true but I I've been experiencing this thing over the past few months and you can tell me if you've had similar experiences um, but people have made judgments you know made decisions about me as a writer or decisions to like regret buying my book or to suggest that I should get fired from certain things because of the content that I retweet these so um very clearly not even my own opinions and I and I would definitely hope that no one sees these things as like offensive um do you reply to those people yeah, because I find it really fascinating. I want to know what, where they're coming from. Um, it usually doesn't lead to a super. Yeah, I was gonna
0: say who's who's on the other end. I mean, are, are these just sort of like, you know, mindless trolls, or do you find real? No, these humans? are very sincere people. That yeah, feel exactly. That, I'm,
1: that I, um, that they've seen my true character, or that I'm offending them by um, retweeting something that again I would you know swear on my i would i'd be very shocked if a jury of my peers found this stuff offensive because i I don't think i like offensive content it's usually stuff um that's maybe critical of um democrats or liberals of which i am one but not like condemning so so this is super interesting
0: (laughs) super super interesting because right i find that people on on both sides I would imagine um, but but I have more exposure on the on the left side of the spectrum it's almost like they want to put you in a very specific
2: mm-hmm, spot mm-hmm.
0: where they are making sort of inherent predictions about the sorts of things that you will endorse or not endorse so in other words you would never criticize anything on the left and you would criticize everything on the right right and that is and anything that doesn't sort of fit neatly into that description is somehow subversive or um, offensive, even. And so, what you're saying is it's not necessarily that someone on the right is against you, but in other words, someone on the left might be against you for it's posting people, so something. It's people who I would say are my
1: own people. Right. And that's really crazy to me because um, unless I was just like a masochistic asshole, like I'm not posting this stuff to like, try to make people feel bad i'm posting it because i would like um I'm, I'm pretty concerned about our current political climate and th- the current president and i would like to avoid a similar situation in the future but but again it like goes back to what i jokingly said earlier with just the outrage like to some degree it does feel like people are just enjoying getting outraged like yeah like not in, in the past
0: just for the sake of the outrage itself
1: yeah so so one person um they said, "Oh, I can't believe that um, you would retweet something from this person. How did this get made? Should should cut ties with you?" And what? I was like, um, "I was like, am I'm, I'm really sorry you feel that way. I mean, no disrespect, um, but I'm frankly pretty surprised that you found that offensive and that you would find me somehow offensive for sharing that." Um, and what was it?
0: Do you remember specifically?
1: Um, I don't even know what they're referring to. It was a post from a um, from a guy named Colin Moriarty who used to be at IGN and started kind of funny, um, and then he left. Um, he actually had a, a real um, twit- a, a bad Twitter backlash situation, which we can, which is there is some validity to it. He he made a joke on um, National Women's Day, I think it was, there uh-huh. was something like. Ah, finally I can relax, or ah, finally I can get some work done. Something that was, um, I think, clearly sarcastic, but that's yeah, not what a, I retweeted.
0: A joke, because right? Because that but, I can but, see how that,
1: that yeah, does that not offend be, me, but I can see how that offends someone. Yeah, sure. But that's not what I retweeted. But it's, but it's, oh, but that's the guy who did this, and so mm. now I'm doing this, and so I asked this guy, who wanted me to um, lose my job. What if someone retweets me? Are you gonna like get mad? Me- Are you gonna? get mad at them for retweeting someone who retweeted someone who's yeah, like how you far like. back does it go and then and then the other thing that's kind of along those lines that i've noticed that really scares me is people um having similar outraged opinions that maybe one person said they regret buying my book because i follow certain people wow and first of all that's ridiculous and or i think it's ridiculous and second of all i'm a writer so Let's say I was following David Duke for an article like you don't know what the reason is. I actually I stopped following Fox News because I just felt like, oh, someone's going to say this guy follows Fox News. He's clearly an alt-right jerk. And um, so Fox News is not my primary source of news. But That's I would really like to try to stay yeah. informed yeah, of yeah, what's I being said in the media landscape.
0: I try to sprinkle in those viewpoints specifically for yeah. for that reason it's interesting that who you follow is public anyway. I mean, I like that, obviously though. that's a feature. Yeah. Um, but right, because then you you might not end up actually following who you want to follow because you're sort of worried about this the picture it paints, um, which is and exactly what you're describing. That's absurd.
1: That- yeah. Yeah.
0: It doesn't make sense. But I, it is interesting. I'm guilty of it too. See, the thing that I also think most people aren't willing to admit or certainly talk about is that. I sometimes have the same knee-jerk reaction. Like, let's say that someone I follow, who you know is is someone on the liberal end of the spectrum, and then they post something that somehow criticizes the left, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of like, hey, like, yeah, like, yeah, like the what facts, the hell, yeah. you know? And then and then I catch myself and I'm like, well, wait a minute, like we should be able to self-examine here and have an honest conversation about facts and what is and what is good and what is bad and what can be improved and where, you know, uh, where the criticisms are valid and where they're invalid. And that should be able to happen left, right, center, anywhere, regardless of where you sit on the spectrum. And, and I almost feel like there's this weird mentality that, that it is wrong to criticize you know, within a certain radius of your seat. Uh, and, that, yeah. and that introspection is, is somehow, you know, looked down upon or, or is, is, you know, uh, treasonous in some way. Do you find that?
1: Absolutely, I find that. And, and I think that um, it's pretty clear which types of opinions tend to do well on Twitter. And it's really strong left progressive opinions. And anything that questions that is, is terrible. There was a, you know, I won't get into the history of this because I, I frankly don't even know enough, but there's, you know, there's something called Gamergate mm. that happened in the gaming space, um, which I will not even try to define because I'm not familiar enough with it. Um, it's most well known for um, some people on one side of it harassing female developers in the game industry, which is pretty heinous in my opinion. Yeah. But I, um, there was a guy, a, a game developer who released, Who revealed the game at E3 last week Um, It turned out that two years ago He had said something um, Positive about Gamergate But what was positive was he said This is what I think Gamergate is, I think it's about ethics and journalism Which is one Perspective on what it's about Um, And he says that Then he said another tweet I'm not a feminist I don't believe in feminism I believe in egalitarianism That everyone should be treated equal Um, Right I don't know if he said other things, but those were the only two tweets that people were responding to, these things from two years ago. And there was this campaign not to buy his game. Um, and I, also when I said, "What?" I, said why, I asked somebody, why are you so upset about this? And they said he was a supporter of Gamergate. And I said, I'm not super familiar with Gamergate. What is it about that that makes you upset? And that person said, I can't believe I bought your book. If you're, like, if you're asking questions, then you're part of the problem.
0: Right, just by snooping around, you know. Like, uh,
1: I mean, part of it maybe is um, people do think uh, maybe it's become so prevalent, the idea of, like, trolling or being sarcastic that the people assume that I'm trying yeah, to maybe. do that. But I I guess well, if there was it's, it's a, sincere, a font for sincereness. I'm like, I would like to know why you're upset and what this means. Because I, gen- I was writing my book at that time and I really was not a part of that. So I almost
0: think that... Asking questions in public is something that people don't know how to handle. (laughs) It's a good observation. In other words, everyone likes big declarative, confident statements. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, look, tweeting something like, I am not a feminist or I don't believe in feminism is probably not a great thing to tweet. Even if you follow it up, And, and if I'm understanding the intention correctly, it was sort of saying, why do we even need the term feminist exactly. because it should be. And, and and I can see arguments on both sides of that, right? That's like someone that says, well, all lives matter. And right. it's like, you know, but, but again, the. And
1: That's a good comparison because that seemed like a silly response to, to me to say all lives matter. But I wouldn't condemn someone for saying it if I only saw a single instance. And it also wasn't like a trending hashtag. Well, in saying, other words,
0: <laughs> there's so many debates that are that shouldn't actually be be there, there are two sides, opposing sides that actually aren't on opposite ends. In other words, everyone should agree that all lives matter and black lives matter. Those aren't opposing right. sentiments. It doesn't make sense. Right. Th- you know what I mean? Uh, and, and so um, if you said black lives matter and black lives do not matter, <laughs> right. that would be those would be two <laughs> yeah, opposing right. sides of an argument, right. you know, um, similarly pro-life, pro-choice. And we don't need to go down that road, but like, to me, it never rung true. How could those two things be on two uh, opposite sides of a debate where clearly one I- encompasses the other? Um, you know, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not necessarily a square right. sort of thing. Right. Um, and and so, yeah, I don't know. There are a lot of things like that. But I do think asking questions about, you know, I wonder what they meant by that. Or, you know, could it be this or don't is is to imply that you believe the the opposite. Instead right. of, you might actually legitimately be asking the question.
1: I And most times I am, and I've tried to come up with ways to make it seem, I am like asking sincerely here, or saying like, oh, you're probably right, but can you clarify this? And sometimes it doesn't work, but mm. at least, you know, if I'm gonna use social media, I'd like to get something out of it. I'd like to learn and hopefully, you know, pass along my own experiences. Um, Sometimes it also gets to like, it's not my job to teach you stuff. All right, well, you know, this is a public forum, so you we were engaging in conversation. No, it's that's it's not your job at all to teach me stuff. But that's
0: the thing, right? Pe- <laughs> people don't seem to be there to converse or discuss or grow, you know. Uh, at least most most people.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I can you know, only I guess well, you don't know what every single Twitter user <laughs> intends to do.
0: Um, so getting to a different topic. Uh how did this get made? Yeah. What is your favorite? I, I think I've read all of the ones that you've, you've posted. Um, and to me, it's so amazing because it taps like so deeply into the nostalgia. We're the same age. We grew up in the same place. Like the things that obviously sort of tickle your fancy about the 90s are very much in line with mine. Mm-hmm. Is there one that stands out to you or just like that is clearly... The best one or the craziest one or the most surprising or
1: mm, I'm cu- I'm curious first to ask you about nostalgia I ca- I kind of feel like I'm like a heartless bastard to some extent like
0: I so you you actually don't have nostalgia about this stuff as you're talking about it
1: not usually I u- I used to be really nostalgic when I was younger and then, after then you started how, reading
0: all that nonfiction
1: yeah I don't know what happened like um because because so many people come up to me and say um I love console where you really capture that nostalgia. And I'm very happy that they had that experience because they clearly enjoyed it. But I went out of my way to not... Like I said, it was for my grandma, so I didn't want to, like... You know, there's certain things I could have done or, like, name-dropping of cultural events to try to make it feel like a certain way, but I didn't want to. But people bring that to it. and that, Or, you know, it's it's this cultural touchstone that brings all these memories. Um, So I don't know. I don't really... I don't know. So that's not the motivation or... Yeah. So
0: sort as when you are breaking down one of these movies, you are being literal in your assessment.
1: No, 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 cuz well one I don't think I make any assessment. That's important to me. I tr- okay. I if possible, I prefer not to watch the movie ahead of time so that I treat the interview as if I'm interviewing the director of the Godfather. Like Right. This is about the people who make these movies. Almost I can't think of a single person in the film industry or most creative industries that doesn't have a passion for it, so it's figuring out what is this person's passion. Um, why did they choose to make this project? Who helped make this project, and what went wrong, if anything went wrong, or what did the audience not see that they saw? So those kinds of things. So um, it's also interesting to see
0: how self-aware or not yeah. some of these folks are. It, it seems like most of them understand sort of the cultural, you know, uh, 2020. rear view mirror sort of perspective on some of these projects
1: it's true well i will say that it's not always the easiest to get interviews with these people because in a way it's it's calling up someone out of the blue and saying hey can you talk about your most embarrassing creative moment and um and i don't think that they have like any obligation to speak on something that they've done years ago if you're promoting if you have a movie coming out or you're promoting something i think it's fair game for you to be critical of someone and to ask them to defend their work if they're campaigning for you to spend sure money. but but to say hey paul remember this thing you did in 1992 a lot of people didn't like it and maybe derailed your career i need you to answer <laughs> for that
0: um so you i don't you don't think enough time has passed that most of them sort of are almost in on it like. well that's the
1: thing i think that um some half the people are probably like in on it, in the, in the sense that like they can laugh about it now um and then half of them think that you know it's maybe in some cases ruin their careers. And so I don't think you ever get over that. Like or to them, it was the movie they wanted and they were surprised that people didn't like it. Okay? Right. And that's and, hurtful was, and they're them. still proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, what I noticed has really helped me with the interviews and kind of um, really like you said, like it seemed like a lot of them have seemed to have a good perspective. It's because I can't think of a single movie that exists today or that has existed in the past 30 years that isn't a cult movie hmm. every movie or or sorry that doesn't have a cult following yeah yeah, yeah. every movie we've done um from a movie as obscure as the apple which i had never heard of before to um i don't know the he-man masters of the universe yeah. that was probably as close as i get to nostalgia yeah um, that and
0: was very nostalgia inducing for me like
1: you know all the directors all i don't always interview directors sometimes it's writers sometimes it's actors I would say in 90% of my interviews, the the main, the director or the, you know, the main person whose creative vision it was, um, tells me proudly that it's become a cult film. Right. And And it it, kind of has. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, look, the reason people would want to read about it or listen to the podcast about it is because they're interested in it for one reason or another. Yeah. If it was truly forgotten, then you wouldn't even have this series. No one would care.
1: Well, that's not necessarily true, because let's give a little background to your listeners. So um, like six years ago, the comedians Paul Scheer, Jason Manzucas, and June Diane Raphael, Paul and Jason starred on that TV show, The League. Paul was Andre Nozick. Jason was Rafi, the crazy uh, (laughs) El Cunado. Um, And they did they created a podcast where they talk about bad movies and they're all improv UCB trained people, so it's kind of like they watch a movie and then riff on it for 90 minutes, talking about how absurd a plot was, or you know, a character's costume, or all these things. Um, and and I think the beauty of what they do is that you don't have to have seen the movie. Uh, in some cases, it helps, and actually, in some cases, it's almost better because you get this idea in your head of like, what are they even describing? Like, there's one called Gooby, that's and then like, maybe
0: you go watch it after. Yeah. I think some people just
1: just I, I, li- I when i started listening to it i i didn't necessarily watch all the so interesting
0: time see for me it was my experience has been like oh yeah i remember that or even if i didn't see it i might remember hearing about right, it or right. something like there's some which and that's what sparks my curiosity
1: right um, right no I, and it's um and kind of along those lines i kn- I notice that the the pieces that I do, um, the the viewership numbers or the clicks and shares or whatever it is, um, it's almost entirely correlated with how well-known the movie is and not yeah. a byproduct of how good of a job I do, <laughs> which is fine, but that's always well, funny. Well, it's probably
0: right just whether someone clicks on it in the first place. Yeah, like know. if
1: I had one with like a director who was like, oh yeah, and I killed 12 people on the set and then like, you know, I held the Right, it was a movie no one ever heard of. Yeah, it never like gets read. People, right. That, like, you know, there would still be the core people that read it, but it still, you know, that yeah. would not do as well as, uh, you know, Fast and the Furious 7. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and so so Paul and Jason and June have been doing this podcast for six years. And then a little over two years ago, I reached out to Paul, who I didn't know at the time, but I had uh, written console Wars um, and Seth Rogen is involved with the forward. He wrote the forward to that and is doing a movie. And so there's sort of an in there. And I said to Paul, hey, Paul, I love your podcast. It's hilarious. But you never fucking answer the question of how did this get made? And I, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Who is making these things? Who is like saying, yeah, speed two. We don't need Keanu Reeves. Like who is making these decisions? And what, like they obviously have justifications. They didn't, they didn't set out to sabotage it. I was like, I will volunteer to uh, try to do this. But even if you think I'm a terrible writer, you should totally steal this idea and get someone else to do it. And he was like, no, you're right. We never really (laughs) answered that. Um, And that's so he wrote you back and was like, yes. Yeah. It's amazing and and this maybe is a good segue into like talking about startup and entrepreneurship yeah and i was like just that. gonna say
0: that's the hustle right there
1: yeah because um that was you know i'm i'm really it's led to probably what's been the most creatively fulfilling experiences of my life um even more so than the book just because those are long-term processes and this is like this almost feels to me like minority report where it's like <laughs> a ball comes out <laughs> here's the name on it all right Here's the movie we're doing. I have two weeks to try to get in touch with this person or find people and do an oral history or an interview. Um, and then I get it out and I um I, I'm allowed to publish it exactly as I want it. So wow. And so, who
0: is the precog in this scenario? Yeah. Is, oh, is, do you come up with the movies? No, or they, they, no, they come up with it. it.
1: Wow. Um and and that's good because like I there were some fans who were kind of worried of like, oh, now that Blake's involved, they're gonna like try to pick movies that have better behind the scenes right, stories. Right, right. But that has nothing and, to do with it. Yeah. And my mentality is always like, I'll always find the good story. There's always a good story. Yeah. So you pick whatever you want. Um, it's a little bit harder with more modern movies because, you know, like if you pick like Fantastic Four, those people are not are all still working and don't really want to trash.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The so, so that's always a little harder. But, uh, but like we find creative ways around it. Like... Um, you know, if I can't get the director or the star or the writer, I'll get like the stunt coordinator or the the animal trainer who um, was responsible for the dog. Right. You'll Chuck, you'll find Chuck it. Norris and a dog would be like, I'll find something. Oh some my angle. god, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a story to tell. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere. And 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 like and I love that the, this opportunity came about basically from me being curious about something and just wanting wanting to learn and having the
0: audacity to go get it right or at least to try in other words how many people maybe had a similar idea thought about it and in this case there might be zero uh but but the point is those people don't get these opportunities and the people that actually write that email uh send that tweet, do whatever it is that actually take that next step. And it is interesting to think about sort of entrepreneurship in this way because, you know, and when you think about, for instance, a career in writing, it's not typically thought of as, you know, uh, a startup like that. When people talk about startups or entrepreneurship, they're usually not talking about this, Mm -hmm. but it's really the same Thing. It's the same mentality, it's the same skill set, it's, it's the same sort of, you know, go-getter attitude. yeah uh, So, I mean, take us through that a little bit. And it's interesting that you're, you know, writing about the entertainment industry and, and, and I'm interested in the through line there, if there sure. is one. Um, but sort of, how does one become the sort of writer that ends up, you know, working with Seth Rogen on a movie? Like, like... I feel like that story is told a lot less than that sort of tech startup sort of... S- yeah. Th- there are a lot of sort of mythology around that, but I feel like there's not really a clear step one, two, three to getting to your career path.
1: Oh, I- I'm happy I talk about myself and talk about that uh that's like you know it's like my love story i love telling the story of how how i got to do uh writing full-time and write what i like about it. but one thing i want to say that i also think is really important um in terms of entrepreneurship and that might resonate with your listeners so so i think that um you know pat on the back it was good i reached out to paul um i i like i love when people reach out to me on twitter and it, it you know with if if it's if it's something that might help me, that's great. Yeah, and they're not necessarily asking for anything in return. Even better, and I usually will try to reward them because they're being so generous. But right. but like um, even you know, there's there, I've had a lot of situations like that in life where I reach out and least nothing. And I think that you know, uh, entrepreneurs you have to get used well, to hearing no. Right,
0: you write ten or a hundred of those emails, and right. ninety nine of them lead nowhere. But you still send another email. Right.
1: And, and I really, really give a lot of credit to Paul for how he handled things after that. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised if someone who was not as curious and as much of a team player collaborator as Paul um, didn't respond to me because they were like, oh, I should take this idea and we right. don't want to like deal with, like, who's this guy? Now he's going to represent us. like, Or, or even... Um, you know, even if he was like, oh, that's a good idea, let's talk about this further, I feel like I've been in a lot of situations where the next step is like, let's talk about um, you know, IP ownership and who gets to do what. And that, you know, when you're kind of at that phase that I'm sure you've been at several times in your career where it's like that spark of excitement of like, what could this be? It's something new. It really does hurt if you're like, all right, well, 15% of like, like basically Paul's mentality was like, give it a go. If yeah. it works out, great. If it doesn't, I'm glad we met and that you're a fan of the show. And 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 I a few months later when I was writing what's, what's probably my favorite thing that I've written besides Console Wars, which was an oral history of the TV show The League, um, which was, so I turned it into a 20,000 page thing to ESPN, uh, 20,000 word, 20,000 words yeah, um, And they were like, whoa, this should be 3,000 words. But <laughs> but anyway, they let me keep it like 10,000 words. Um, and and I, so I was having like, you know like a 3 hour call with Paul to talk about like how his growing up because it was really very personal about these main characters and i said hey I, you know i really wanted to thank you for um being such a good um collaborator like you know you liked the idea and responded like like a, a happy curious interested person it was like let's 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 basically instead of looking for ways to say no he was like let's try it let's figure it out yeah. and a lot of people you know, oh, is this good for our brand? Blah, blah, blah.
0: Right. Or they're already, like you were saying, sort of skipping ahead to well, what does this mean? What's the split right. going to look like? What's the you know, yeah. legal implications? The whatever. Like, in other words, all of that can stifle that sort of spark. Right. You know, um, it's also amazing when you really realize and, and sort of internalize the fact that everyone is just another dude or dudette. Like, it's, yeah. there's just some other real human person living their life on the other end, I don't care if it's Barack Obama or, you know, some random indie band that no one else knows about that you're a huge fan of, like if you can find a way to reach them and you are really passionate about something they're passionate about and you connect just on that sort of basic level, you know, um, I, I, I almost feel like a lot of people just don't. I don't know if it's a matter of like idolizing people or just sort of assuming I need to go through their agent or like, right, right. you know, but there's the Internet's amazing because I'm assuming you emailed. Yeah, right? yeah. It was probably fairly easy to find Paul's email. Yeah. And and get through to him. Now, whether he read it, whether he replied to you is totally different story. Um, but but ultimately, he probably read your email and was like, wow, this guy likes to nerd out about the same stuff I like yeah. to nerd out about. That's all I need to know.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's like a testament to Paul. He, he is a dude first and then like, you know, a brand or whatever. Later, like he, right. um, and, and what he said to me was really important that time when we, when I thanked him for, you know, just kind of giving it a try and not looking for reasons to say no. And he said, he doesn't said like always like, you know, if someone brings me a good idea, um, I'm always going to be supportive. And he said, and I want to thank you because 90% of the time that people come up to me with an idea, mostly for like, hey, we should work on a comedy special together, or hey, maybe you should, you know, I've got an opportunity for you, um, I'll send you a pitch. He said 90% of the time people don't follow through. Wow. So even just me following through, and you know, that's that to me is like the lesson. It's like not just coming up with the idea, but um, having the flexibility. Like we didn't know if it was gonna be oral histories, interviews, an yeah. article. Um, and that was something that we figured out together. But um,
0: there's like a Jay Leno quote, I think, about his career, I'm paraphrasing, but that you know, basically the, the way he f- succeeded in his career was just by showing up for gigs.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and that, there's a lot of
0: and that that's that was his main differentiating factor. Like the clubs would book him and they'd book some other comedian, and the other people would sometimes flake, and he always showed up. And so they booked him again they booked him again they booked him again (laughs) and that's how he like progressed through his whole career
1: i think that's that's a that's been really true in my experiences personally and with people around me um the one addition i'd make to that that maybe sometimes feels like it gets lost in that lesson is like the showing up is important but it's also you know what you do when you show up in the sense that like i'm sure jay leno gave it his all whether it was for an audience of one or an audience of a thousand like the first piece i did was on top dog the movie of chuck norris being paired up with a dog i think it could have been really easy to like (laughs) you know be dismissive of that movie or you know not basically be like well i'm just getting make excuses for myself like this is not gonna be that good most people don't know this movie but I wrote it as if it was like The Godfather, and I interviewed the animal trainer, I interviewed um, one of the producers, and like I, I want it, as with everything that I actually put out, if someone's going to spend their time, I want this to be like um, an A+, in my opinion, or as much as I can. And maybe some people won't feel that way, but I want everything I put out could be the first thing that someone reads for me, it could be the only thing they read that day, And I want them to feel like they've used their, like they don't regret their time. And I think that that's a big part of the showing up thing. It's not just like, all right, I made it. Yeah, it's it's a
0: certain level of integrity, you know? Right. But it also plays nicely, I mean, not surprising, into your sort of grandma thesis, where as you're writing a piece about Top Dog that is, in other words, it's not assuming some sort of patronizing tone or really any context at all And is the way I read your writing is that you tell the story sort of as it is. And, and again, sort of making the assumption that the reader doesn't actually have the context. And because of that, it, it I don't know. In other words, it, to me, it, it, it goes back to this grandma thing. Like she's never heard of this movie. Right. So I want to make sure that, that, by the end of it she actually gets what this is about not in a sort of wink wink way right right but in a in a sort of straightforward way regardless of what the subject is
1: well i think it has a lot to do with like the oral history and what i have used the word phrase i've used a few times like character driven perspective where i really make an effort to not judge in the sense of like, oh, this movie was good, this movie was bad, this scene was good, this was bad. I want the people to tell it on their own words. I want them to tell me what they thought was good, what they thought was bad. I want them to tell me if they think it was a success or not. Right. Because then you're learning as much about them, you know, because then if I say, all right, here's what it did at the box office, it finished 15th behind these other movies. Right. And they're saying, oh, it did great. You know, you're learning about them. And also it gives them the chance to, um, you know, it's like, every, it's their journey that you are a part of and so I don't even like when you said it's not I'm not telling it as is I don't even know that there is an as is like every history is such a matter of perspective um so I think it's in that you know that's why I think oral histories work well because you're showing different perspectives um and then if I do usually it's the
0: first person account
1: right and it's the first person account and that doesn't happen enough in my opinion um Hmm. it's that. A lot of these people. Well, we will talk about it with video games because I'm surprised, I'm shocked by how few people actually do first interview the actual sources. But so, so for writing for me, um, you're right. When I, when we were 18, uh, graduating from high school, I was not like, see you later, Paul. I'm gonna go off and be a nonfiction writer. What did you study in college? Um, I I applied to the business school at Georgetown, and I got into that um, off the waiting list. Um, I always joke to people that my <laughs> diploma was going to say waiting list and a lot of them actually believe that I, whatever. Um, so I went to Georgetown to study business. I, I, um, I actually didn't really start reading for fun until senior year of high school. Um, and I had, um, you know, uh, like this whole world opened up to me. Like I felt, I kind of went through most of high school trying to avoid reading. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, going for the cliffs notes and doing all this other stuff. And then I was like, oh, my God, I never read Captioning the Ride. This thing is so good. I'm going to go assassinate someone. No, I'm like, no, this thing is so good. Or I never read The Great Gatsby. I somehow, like, missed those. Yeah, and then, like, right. I quote, unquote, read To Kill a Mockingbird, but didn't really. I, You know, I guess a big thing I noticed for me is that when I do something um, of my own volition, I enjoy it a lot more than if I'm told to do it. Yeah. I don't know what that with the background is there. But when I, I mean, was like,
0: just sounds like being a reasonable <laughs> autonomous human.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you get, if it's the same underlying content, I it guess seems so. weird that if you're like, right. Um, you know, right. You must do this. I'm like, no. But if I, anyway, so, so I read like, <laughs> I remember I read like 50 books between like our second semester and over the summer. And I got, re- you know, then I, by the time I got to school, I was like, oh my God, I, I love to write something as, good as this or just you know to start telling stories um and and so I ended up transferring from the business school to the college there and studying English and studying creative writing I think I was maybe the only person in Georgetown that did that they ended up killing the major the year after I left um but that was good I think I also do well in environments where um I have autonomy so right I they kind of didn't really know what to do with me, and that gave me a lot of freedom to like set up like an independent study. Um, and, and mostly I was just trying to get through classes so I can work on my own stuff. I, I was good about being self-motivated. I went um, away abroad for a semester, junior year to Spain, um, and did... <laughs> the opposite of what you're supposed to do like I did not immerse myself in the culture I just locked myself in the room with a family I was staying with and wrote a novel I want I wanted to just go someplace to be secluded to write but so anyway so by the time I was graduating from college I I knew I wanted to be a writer or I knew I loved writing but I had no idea how to go about getting a job doing it Um, it's it is definitely a like most creative fields it's it's very competitive, but it's also very hard to even just navigate, like, what should I do? What could I do? Right. Um, you know, even people are like, oh, if you want to be writer, write. Okay. So even exactly. if I have like five manuscripts, what am I supposed to do with this now? Um and so though um two things then happened. I started to think, you know, if there if there is such a thing as like a track for writing. Um, which there really isn't. There is at least more of one when it comes to filmmaking and screenwriting. Um,
0: and were you interested in that naturally, or did you sort of identify that because there was sort of a track?
1: Um, more the latter, but you know, I liked I liked writing, and I loved movies. So it's, yeah, no, it's
0: it's super interesting. Like thinking about myself as a designer. It's the same sort of thing where you're like, I want to design. It's like, well, what the right. hell does that mean, you know? Right. Um, but I ended up, like, getting into magazine design and advertising design because, again, those were careers that existed. Right, you right, know, right, Not because I inherently was passionate about advertising or something. You yeah, know? yeah.
1: So it was definitely, you know... It- when I graduated, I my dream in life was to be Jonathan Saffron Fowler and write fiction. I started I like fiction then. Um, this, but, this
0: was in the fiction the fiction era yeah. still.
1: Um, and then, but um, you know, I definitely wasn't that good. Um, and uh, and so my plan after graduating was that. And then the other thing that happened was I got a job trading commodities for Brazilian clients in New York. So I was working at Rockefeller Center. I started. I think. How how did that
0: happen? We just went from like great. So I've identified like a track in film yeah. writing, and then
1: oh well, it was because I had interned there the summer before. But that doesn't really answer the question. Um, the girl that I was dating from high school and throughout college, her mother worked in a legal department there, and she helped get me an internship. And the summer before my senior year of college. I did this. I did like three months for this uh, desk of eight people, Um, seven Brazilians, one American, and we traded commodities like sugar, coffee, soybeans for Brazilian clients. And it was like, I actually, I really liked the people. I did not really like the job that much. And I remember like the last day, um, I was like, peace out, I'll never see you guys again. (laughs) I'm gonna go be a famous writer. Yes. And then um, I applied, actually applied to a bunch of uh, MFA creative writing programs. And got rejected from most, Hmm. and then I got into a couple, um, and then even sort of realized like I don't really want to, um, you know, take out student loans and accumulate debt for um, for a career that getting a degree in it doesn't help me. Yeah, it doesn't um, necessarily imply anything. Yeah, uh, and um, and I'm. Pretty well self-motivated, so if it's just a matter of getting in the habit of writing regularly, I think I could do that elsewhere. And surely I'll miss the guidance of talented professionals, but hopefully I can make up for that, um, you know, by not spending forty thousand dollars and doing other things. Um, so I ended up being very happy to get this job um, with the place I interned. So I was working at Rockefeller Center, and I had that job for seven and a half years.
0: Wow! So and. Was there how long were you a business major, by the way, before you switched? Like was this sort um, of remnant of the yeah. interest in business or this was just sort of
1: the interest in business was um never like a Gordon Gecko-esque interest in business. <laughs> it was more a matter of um I th- and I still think like you said about right, everything in life is business. So like this this right. is, I'm probably gonna learn helpful things and I don't know what I wanna do, but having the skill set. It's pretty good. Um, And and frankly, like switching from the business to the English, I don't really even know what difference it made other than in my mind. I was like, I am now I'm not a business person. I'm a writing person. Creative. Right. But uh, but so, you know, I had that I got I started that job and I was living with my grandmother in the city and I was saving up money to go to film school. My plan was to like take this year off or, you know, spend this year with this job I then finally say peace out and go to film school, where I would be secure on this track and at least in an environment where I felt like, all right, I'm 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 going to be a screenwriter. Um, and then along the way, or you know, within that within that year period when I was living with my grandma, just saving up money and being really frugal, um, a friend or a, a guy that we went to high school with, who was a year older than us, Jonah Toulis. Yeah. Um, who I was not super friendly with, but uh, I knew because our dads were on the same slow pitch softball team. Um, him and he w- he had studied filmmaking at Colgate. He was also uh, like a really good self starter. Um, and we started
0: Jonah Toulis had a brief stint as the bassist in my sixth grade band. I have Colorblind some demo tapes. Early Colorblind Dilemma. <laughs> he sat in on a couple of sessions. As That's the awesome.
1: Bassist. It's
0: amazing that you remembered
1: the name. I know. I'm, I'm really proud of that. <laughs> Um, I want to hear those. Oh, it's so that's awesome! Um, Jason Alaska
0: is going to be in town next week, actually,
1: uh, and you'll me. play the clip now from. Yeah, exactly. Games. And here's Colorblind Dilemma <laughs> yeah. with, um, and uh, yeah, so Jonah, who I've gone on to have a very long and um, successful and happy partnership for almost eleven years now, but anyway, we. We were on this. We were both on this slow pitch softball team in the town where we grew up, and we were like the young guns. We were eighteen and nineteen, and everyone else in the league was like our dads. They were like in their fifties, professionals. Um, you know, so we were like the two kids on the team, and we found it so funny that these people who, you know, where we grew up is a pretty well to do town. So most of these people were like doctors and lawyers and bankers um, who do, I would say, either very important things at work or at least. High stress things at work, yet they I've, they got so competitive and they took so seriously this like <laughs> frivolous thing, and um, that made us think like about rock paper scissors and just this idea of like taking something that's so silly so seriously, um, and we ended up writing a screenplay called The Flying Scissors. Uh, it was a mockumentary about competitive rock, paper, scissors, very much in the style of like a Christopher Guest movie. But Arrested Development was out at the time and The Office had just come out. So we wanted to do it like a little bit faster than the Christopher Guest movie with more cuts and cutaways. Um, and so we ended up, you know, I, I in my mind, that was kind of like practice or Jonah. Jonah would know what to do once we wrote a script. Um and we were like, oh, at some point, he's like, oh, we should make this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, what, cool, let's make it. Um, and then um, when we finished it, I thought it, I was pretty happy with it. And he was pretty happy. And he's like, no, yeah, we should really make this. And I was like, all right, cool. We'll each put in $3,000 and, you know, for $6,000, we'll make this low budget movie. Um, and then that ended up ballooning to like $125,000 <laughs> and all the money that I had saved for film school. I was going to um, say,
0: 6000 seems like too little, but that seems like a really significant increase.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I don't, I mean, how can I regret it? I'm happy with how everything turned out in the long run. But um, I made a decision, we, you know, we made decisions that are probably pretty typical of a lot of young startups, um, where you always have options, you know, you can do different quality levels. Yes. And if something's your baby, you don't ever want to feel like, oh, I'm choosing like oh we're not we're gonna do non SAG actors but it would be so much better if we did SAG actors and it's only six yeah, thousand exactly. like, more dollars yeah only eight thousand more dollars
0: we want the best you know, yeah right. and
1: like you know we and then at some point we decided we were doing this and here's when we're gonna shoot it and we started signing contracts and then that just accelerates it even more because now we there's a lot of things we didn't plan out and we're going to just be paying a premium because we need it on that specific day or we need we need a location so if that means just like. Somehow I'm going to just spend two thousand dollars to rent an apartment for a day, like you know. We just, those were a lot of preventable mistakes, um, and uh, and you know. So we did this movie, The Flying Scissors. Um, I now that the baggage of it is gone, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. But but there was a lot of baggage, like you know, like most young filmmakers. We thought like, oh, we're going to make this, then we'll get into Sundance, and then they'll give us like awards and then people will like just give us money and yeah, like no problem. do whatever you want. Um, Step one, two, three. Yeah. And so that's obviously how it happened. I think we ended up applying. We ended up getting rejected from every single festival we applied to except for one. And then Jonah said we shouldn't go to that one because it would make it obvious that we had applied to festivals and not gotten into them. So <laughs> at least we can be like, we can at least say like, oh, we're we're not into it's yeah, not a exactly. festival movie. Right. Um, and so... I go into great detail about that um, because that did form, you know, a big part of that you know, that was a really important early experience for me. But also um what happened later really did shape a lot of what got me into console wars and nonfiction writing, which was so we made this movie, we both spent way more than we expected. Um I was clearly not gonna be going to film school now, I was not, you know. I was probably going to be at this job for a long time. John and I started doing screenwriting. Uh, we ended up finding, we never sold anything, but, you know, we at least did have like spec scripts and we got, we got good management out of it. So we were seemingly like moving up a ladder. Uh-huh. But, but we had this, this film that we shot. Um, and after the, after getting rejected from so many festivals and we spent so many hours editing it and John specifically, he, I was still working my job. John was doing this full time editing all day, deserves a ton of credit for that. And when you come up with nothing, it's, like, devastating. Yeah. Um, So I think that, you know, and we also, we were the investors, so it's not like we had investors to answer to. So we kind of just, you know, buried our heads in the sand, kind of embarrassed. And then after, like, a year or so, we were kind of like, hey, this is pretty good. It's not, this is not the Godfather, but, like, for a certain audience, I mean, it's funny. Yeah. Like it's I, We think it's funny, that Christopher Guest movie. It's probably not. But at least it's like, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not bad. Um, and then I had this idea of like, well, who would appreciate this the most? Probably like stoned college kids. Um, like we, uh, not, not that we were stoners. Jonah especially was uh, not. Uh, but, uh, you know, we were. I was like, what about college kids? So I started thinking like, all right, at Georgetown, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they would play a movie that was between theater and like DVD release or yeah, DVD at the time. And I was like, Oh, maybe Georgetown will like do play this for one of those nights. Like, oh, I went there. Yeah, totally. Sh- like night creates this. Yeah. Like, so I got in touch with the, uh, I forget what the group was called, but it was like the student activity committee. And I was like, Hey guys, I went here. Um, the one really smart thing we did when we were like, let's try to salvage this was we made an awesome trailer or a trailer that was as good or better than the movie, yeah. Um, so we had like two minutes to show people, and I was like, "What Here's year trail. was this approximately?" Um, we filmed it in 2006, and this was probably around like 2009 when we um, really made this like second effort with it.
0: It's it's the reason I ask is because thinking about sort of video distribution today versus then, in other words, today you could there's you could basically. Distribute that movie yourself. You could even distribute it to, you know, you could have your own app, you could have your own website, you could put it on all the OTT platforms. Now, marketing it, sure, totally different situation. But I think
1: that because of what I'm about to tell you, that probably would have been a better option for us. But it was this transition time, and also not even the distribution, but like we didn't film on, uh, you know, like. Millimeter or 60 millimeter film, but we did film on tapes and the tapes were really expensive. So,
0: this was still tape, so
1: this was like, oh, you know, yeah, like a lot of these costs, yeah, the, right, right on the
0: cusp, sort of, where today yeah. clearly that would have been, I'm sure all we would have digital. loaned it on
1: something else, but yeah, like, of course, but you know, those were a lot of expenses and we had to convert it. Converted and, um, and so, George, I the Georgetown people were like, oh, yeah, this looks great, um, let's figure out a time. And then I was like, oh, well, yeah, I went to Georgetown, but like, maybe if I reach out maybe other schools would want to play it so i was like oh what about george washington my my neighbors high college and then um i basically this was the really important experience in my life i literally contacted 400 or probably 500 different schools and there's no like here's where you contact to send the movie it was like i went to every i put a list of like every college in america um you know, then, so you know, or at least the ones that had a certain amount of students, and then went to that school's webpage and tried to figure out who on that campus decides, like, what right, activities who the are decision done makers, or, and yeah, and and that's and also, had you
0: ever done sales or anything no. like that?
2: This is no. just sort of oh, uh, actually, in
1: high school, I did sell the knives for Cutco, <laughs> <It was laughs> same
2: able, thing, which is the worst experience
1: of my life, but yeah, and uh, and so and it's pretty creepy too because, like. Sometimes you would they would say like oh uh, Christine Schmansky is you know the the movie person for our student activity committee and I was like well there's no contact info for her but I can like stalk her and figure out like what's her oh, yeah. email address yeah. at this obscure school and so I ended up emailing about five hundred schools and it was a numbers game and about ten percent of them said yes and that was fifty schools and that was so many nos and so many people being like no this is so stupid and that, and for me being like the first time that I put myself out there in that way you know at first that was like hurtful but getting over that was the most important thing that ever happened to me um just basically realizing you have nothing to lose except for your time um but now when now we could you know we ended up getting distribution with warner brothers certainly not like a uh we're rich deal um there was no money up front but like then but we can go to them and say hey we've set up a 50 college tour that's playing the movie um it's amazing and that was that was uh you know a big deal and at least even just peace of mind for me and jonah to know that this thing we made that we spent so much time on at least there's a way for people to see it you know did you
0: go to some of those screenings
1: we went to a couple and the funny thing happened too like um syracuse was the first one um, the girl was like, oh, this, this looks so funny. Can we play it for two nights? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, how much do we have to pay you? And I was like, mm, I don't know, like $400. And she's like, all right, cool, send an invoice. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, some schools will like, pay for this. That's great, too. Right. Um, but so that experience was really helpful when flashing forward like a couple of years later. Um, so Joan and I wrote a script called The Sordid Tales of an Evil Tyrannical Ex-Dictator. And it was basically like a Ricky Gervais-type dictator of a wealthy European country, like a Liechtenstein, um, who, who gets overthrown and uh, then is brought into like the witness protection program in the U.S. Um, and he works at the DMV in New Jersey. So he's gone from being like this great <laughs> life to this terrible <laughs> life. And then um, people from his old life come and try to assassinate him. Uh, it was kind of like a modern version of coming to America or My Blue Heaven. And this was the best thing we ever wrote. This was like when I felt like we started to hit our stride. Um, I don't know if it was 10,000 hours or whatever, but I felt like all right, we're really getting the hang of this thing. And then a week after we finished it, Sasha Baron Cohen um, announced that he was doing a movie called The Dictator. Uh-huh. And um, that was like one of the most crushing experiences of my life because not only was was nothing going to happen with my script but he hadn't even written his and also that made sense if i was a studio person i would totally bet on this hilarious Ali g guy well with known, an idea right. as opposed to like this random blake and jonah guy and i can't really blame him for that like that's so that was really formative because it made me realize that that could pretty much happen to any idea i have and so because that's the case i should just really make sure that i love what i'm doing. And that I'm having fun along the way, and that and I kind of in my mind gave up on the idea of trying to do something commercially. And so, of course, that's the one thing that actually worked out for me. Um, And so, like, it was around that time that my brother got me a Sega Genesis, which is what we had when we were growing up. And I were you a
0: Sega household?
1: We were a Sega household, and I'll tell you why in a second how that kind of inspired the book. But like, you know, I was playing NHL '94 and Sonic. And I expected these things to be fun in a nostalgic sort of way. Like, you know, I thought it would just be like um, fun and relaxing and bring back memories. But I found like, wow, these games are actually like, like they hold up in a nice way. Um, And wow, Sega, playing video games used to be such a big part of my life back then. Why was it not anymore? And then I guess I left out this detail, but somewhere along the way I started reading nonfiction. And I loved, you know, my favorite things to read and to watch were books and movies like Moneyball or The Accidental Billionaires, which became The Social Network. And... Stuff like that, and uh, and so before I even wrote console wars, I honestly just wanted to read it. And I remember going to um, the Barnes and Noble on Eighty Sixth Street. It's like a really big, really nice Barnes and Noble. And I went to the uh, I was looking for the video game history section, and so I went to the film history section, and then there's the music history section next to it, and then uh, but there was nothing on video games. And so I went to the woman at the question mark desk, and I said like, "Hey, where's the video game history section?" And she literally laughed, and then I was like, oh, I guess you don't have that. Um, like, can I just get one of the books on Sega or Nintendo so I can see what was really going on behind the scenes of my childhood? Um, there was no such book. They did not even offer to like order one like they always do when I'm like, yeah, I can do yeah, it myself. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, well, can I just get like, I'm really interested in the business of video games, or like the history of video games, not necessarily the games themselves, but I'll take actually the games themselves. Um, like, can, what do you have in the store? And they didn't have a single book in the entire store. The only video game related thing they had were walkthrough guides. Um, and so that was really odd to me because I did not know a ton about video games, but I knew it was a big industry, you know, and, and maybe there didn't need to be a whole section or maybe it wasn't that weird, but like there should at least be a book in a Barnes & Noble on video games. And there wasn't. And then, um, you know, it's not like I left the story that day like saying, aha, I'm going right. to there's show the this Right, there's the light bulb. But but it definitely like set me in the direction of like, well, that's weird. Uh, so the only thing I could think was that the stories behind the scenes were boring or not that good. And then after I started interviewing people, I realized that wasn't the case at all. That this was an incredible story between Sega and Nintendo. And there was a lot of incredible video game stories. Um, And then getting back to your question about, were we a Sega household? Well, we were a Nintendo household, like one in three households in America in 1989. Um, And so naturally, when we heard the Super Nintendo was coming out, and I say we, meaning me and my brother, because it was always a very shared experience. We we put together basically the childhood equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation for our parents. And we're like, here's we need to get the super nintendo it's like what we have now but better like we'll combine all of our hanukkahs and birthdays and whatever else for years. you know players to be named later we need to get this thing and i distinctly remember my father saying nope and we were like what you know we have wonderful parents they always if we wanted something they would if you know we, we weren't super wealthy but if they could get it for a birthday gift they would try or at least if we couldn't they would help us try to find a way like oh maybe we can do chores or we'll help you save up and set up a bank account but there wasn't even any of like there was no desire on their part to help us get a super nintendo and my dad said um and i quote uh no because nintendo will just come out the super duper nintendo and then a super super duper nintendo after that and we're not getting caught up in that cycle wow and you could say in a way my dad was correct he did yeah, predict yeah there's future some video games.
0: clairvoyance there
1: but uh, but 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 the reason I find that significant and, and you know wanted to get into a little bit of detail was um ultimately what my dad and a lot of people at that time were responding to was this issue of backwards compatibility that this new Nintendo system couldn't play your old games. Um and so in a way a lot of people felt like um Nintendo was like burning them and making them start over and make this new investment. And Really, if you think about it, that was a business decision. You know, the Super Nintendo could have been back with compatible. It just would have cost more money or it would have maybe, you know, continued the market for old cartridges and not had the new ones take off. And you, so
0: you could replace Nintendo with Apple and those consoles with iPhone and hear people talking about that today.
1: Right. Exactly. And so thinking about this now, when I was like 27 or 28 at the time, thinking like, wow, somebody in a boardroom somewhere or a committee actually made a decision that made my family not a Nintendo household anymore. Planned
0: obsolescence. And like
1: what made them do that? And I'm sure they like, with how this came made, they weren't like, Hey, let's, how can we screw the Harris family and other families like it? They thought this was a good idea. And maybe, maybe in some ways it was, but uh, I wanted to know that kind of stuff. Um, And then that's kind of what set me on the course of doing this book. And again, it was like, at first, you know, I had no writing credits. I didn't even have like, hey, I've written these articles. I could all I could say was like, hey, I've written this movie, The Flying Scissors, which is a classic. Um, and, you know, I've done some screenwriting. Can I have some time to interview you about this business story? So most people said no or, or most people didn't respond. But it was like a numbers game. And so um, there seems
0: to be a theme there. Yeah. with Basically, just spray and pray sort of you write to a, a really high volume of people and you hope that and i have a really
1: stupid kind of feels like ocd type thing that i don't know if it actually makes any difference but like even though it's like the spray and pray approach i always actually write out the email even like i yeah yeah you're not copying and pasting and yeah like i mean i don't know why it feels even if i just write the exact same thing it feels like all right this is an authentic genuine interaction. But
0: I think I think actually that seems consistent with what you've said so far even how you were saying that you want every piece of writing to be a plus in case it's the yeah. only exposure that someone has to you or or whatever there's just something about the integrity um with which you you sort of dictate your work by that seems very consistent with that. In other words Yes, I'm going to send out whatever, 500 emails and maybe I'm only going to get a 10% response rate or or whatever it was for this project. But like for the people that actually read the email, right, it has to be a good email or else my response rate is going to be zero.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think that there's that's definitely my mentality is like even, even nowadays when I write emails, I feel like I put the same care into them that I do the book or article which i don't, which i don't know if it's a good thing you know what i it. do
0: maybe i'm also ocd i will send myself an email i like to write emails on the computer yeah, like me too I, I, I don't know there's something about the composition and the paragraph breaks like that's sort of i like the keyboard but I understand that most people are receiving emails on phones these days. So I'll actually send myself the email first Ooh, really, to see what it looks oh, like. Now you're
1: going to make this even worse for me on because I'm start doing this.
0: Because sometimes it, it yeah. doesn't sort of render the way you want it to or, or an email that seems short on the computer seems long or you need to break up the paragraphs. And so I'll go and edit based on the what it looks like on mobile um it's again it it could be like a totally not important email
1: yeah but so yeah i don't know if i recommend this to listeners but (laughs) but it's a weird thing that i and you seem to also do um so anyway so i i i'll kind of cut to the chase but um i started interviewing people um you know it was really hard at first to get interviews with the major decision makers at Sega Nintendo yeah. for understandable reasons, again, because like, why would they waste their time on me? Or what, why take the risk of talking to someone like me? Um, but, but I guess I, you know, I proved my worth. I got enough connections through friends friend of a friend, you know, this guy who worked there knows this guy. Um, and then I spoke with, uh, I finally got a two hour interview with Tom Kalinske, who's the main character of Console Wars. And I realized very early into our conversation that outside of my parents, this is the guy most responsible for my childhood. (laughs) You know, he, in the 1960s, after college, after studying advertising, he got a job, uh, J. Walter Thompson, and helped create the Flintstones Chewable Vitamins. And then he went to, uh, ended up going to Mattel and helped revive the Barbie doll at a time when they didn't know if they were going to continue it or at least continue in that way. Um, And he introduced... um, key concepts with market segmentation and different types of Barbies. because um, he want, he thought a girl should be able to be anything with barbie Did you
0: tell him this on the spot or were you sort of playing it cool?
1: Um the latter, but I probably wasn't playing it as cool as I thought <laughs> right. it was. And I'm sure that um yeah. I mean I, I was trying to play it cool. Got I it. definitely that was the
0: that was the intended approach.
1: Yeah. But. I mean back then especially I didn't even that was like my first like real interview it felt like to me and i had no training other than that i had listened to a lot of podcasts and i loved how people just had conversations instead of saying all right question two you right. know in 1990 nintendo introduced this so um so that was kind of like my background I, I always really thank um like bill simmons and or credit bill simmons and matthew berry from um the fantasy focus podcast on adam carolla like they really gave me cut the confidence to do it for one because a lot of those guys didn't have a background in interviewing and doing conversations. Have you
0: thought about launching your own interview-based podcast?
1: Yeah, I have. I and mean, we've, we you know, we've done a spin-off with How Did This Get Made? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's something that I really want to explore further after I finish um, my book.
0: Right. But, I mean, uh, more in a generic sort of... Like, is interviewing people as one-offs as opposed to in service of a book... Or a specific piece, like is that something interesting to you? Oh, absolutely.
1: I think it's. I, I mean, I. That ultimately, that's what the how the skit pieces are. They're long form conversations with these people. The only difference is, I. Um, you know, if I I love the free flowing nature of the conversation, um, but if it's like specific about a, some a movie or a career, mm-hmm. um, when in written form, I have the option to edit it a little bit to frame it for the audience in a way that in my mind, like saves them time or gets them the full impact. And I didn't think that you could do that in a podcast, but after the first time when we released my interview with Mel Brooks, I felt like the people at Earwolf did such a great job editing it that it actually made me think like, wow, this is probably as good or better than the written version. And maybe I don't, <laughs> maybe I should really be doing this. Um, but yeah, I love interviewing people. Um, I especially love for with, um, with you know, with people that have done interesting or things that connected with us in some way, whether they were like a gaffer on a movie that we know, or whether they were the guy coding Echo the Dolphin. There's some, you know, connection there. And then seeing all the other things that happened in their life.
0: Well, it's an interesting contrast to Console Wars, where obviously the the research was this series of interviews, but the final product is not is not interviews. And so... In other words, you're you're starting from the same sort of primary source material, right? But then the output could take these different sorts of forms. So, do you have a preference in the end, or do you like?
1: I think that both. I love both, but I think that um, taking all those ingredients, which is not just the interviews, but you know, it's the combination of interviews and then my own other research, and making that into something that's bigger than the sum of its parts. Is I think in the end the more effective, the more engaged, it can be, the more effective, more engaging one. It also takes more time. Yeah. So part it's of, sort the of reason-
0: reconciling multiple accounts. And- exactly. Right.
1: So, um, like, even to this day, when I, I I think oral histories are kind of lazy, but and as someone who does them, <laughs> yeah. but that's compared, but like,
2: no, it's know, a different. It's a different. If I have two thing. weeks
1: to do something, then I I don't have time to like weave right. this into a full narrative, but I think that the full narrative is more effective, um, as you know.
0: Well, even we were talking before we turned the mics on, you were asking me why I started a podcast and, and right, because it's, it's somehow more direct than writing as a, an aspiring professional writer. And as a current sort of, you know, sporadic hobbyist writer, uh, this seems a lot more straightforward. You have a conversation You hopefully create some sort of meaningful content, you know, and you just and you put it out. And of course, there's some light editing, whatever. But um, whereas with writing, it seems like a lot more. um, I don't even know what the word is, is even if you're not doing an investigative piece, but it's even just your own original thought. There's a lot of sort of self-editing and self Reconciliation, right? You know, the, even if the primary source is just your own thoughts, um, you still have to package it in a way. Exactly. That's, that's different, and that's why
1: I think I mean it's harder, and I think it's better when done right. But like, you know, if if I pull up Microsoft Word tonight and stare at a blank screen, it is not going to fill itself. But if you and I put on the mics, right? All of a sudden, you've got we're going to be able to just yeah. talk for hours as yeah. long as we're both, you know, yeah. engaged in the conversation. So, so
0: when you set out when you started these interviews, did you know, okay, this is going to end up as a, whatever it is, 500 something page book. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go pitch it to publishing houses and I'm going to do this whole thing. Or was it really just sort of an organic process that as the story started to unfold and you started to write, you realized sort of what it could become.
1: Definitely the latter. And I, and a quote that I thought about a lot, Even though I don't even know what the exact quote was, but but a concept I thought about a lot was that line from the Social Network movie where um, the Eduardo character says to the Mark Zuckerberg character, like, uh, you know, I think he's talking about getting ad sales or doing or doing somehow monetizing it, and and Zuckerberg says, "We don't even know what it is yet," Mm. and that was felt so important to me when I was doing this, where. For two years, it was a three-year process to write the book, and the first two years were almost exclusively interviews and research. And I just felt like, you know, when people tell me stories, I'll in my head I'll start to structure it, but like, don't commit to anything. Like, if somebody says something that totally contradicts that, don't be stubborn about. It. Like, I so want- you weren't
0: even sort of putting pen to paper, writing the story at that point. It was just correct gathering information.
1: Yeah. So what really happened was after I spoke with Tom Kalinske and realized that there was like a great epic um story here or at least a, you know a, a protagonist and a narrative driven story yeah. of taking sega from five percent on the market to 55 percent and then back down and during the six-year period with this engaging charming guy um i started to put together um just a treatment which you know like uh, i don't even know or an out like something uh, this, i put together this 25 page treatment that was more so for me than anybody else it was just like what do i have here what is the narrative arc what are the key events like is the story going to focus more on this period and you know i did want to put it together in a way that i could share it with a friend like you or share it with my um my manager my screenwriting manager at the time to be like hey man there's a great story here like i want to do this as a book can you help me or maybe this would be a great did you think
0: about i mean did you and 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 Jonah had that conversation. Like, should this be a movie? Should we write a screenplay around this? Yeah.
1: Well, it became like the after I spoke with Tom Klinsky, it was the first time in my life that I ever felt so interested about something that I was, that I wanted to spend a few years on it. Like, like I wow. felt like, or at least I felt like I could see what this story was and what it felt like in my head. And part of it is because of um, he's a great storyteller and also like the cinematic nature of the story it starts off with him this guy who's had all these years in the toy business um, and he's kind of at a crossroads in his life um, politics kind of pushed him out of Mattel where he had been very successful and been like their youngest CEO and uh, then he took an, another job in Matchbox Cars but anyway it was like 1990 he was on the beach with his wife and his three daughters at a crossroads in life, didn't really know what he was doing and he's approached out of the blue by the small Japanese man Hayo Nakayama who's got the world's greatest comb-over and um, he says to Tom, basically like, I've been looking for you and I want you to come run Sega and take on Nintendo. So, that was like, you know...
0: It really does read like fiction.
1: Yeah. So, I could see like, alright, this is a story of an outsider being brought into this industry which wasn't even an industry at the time and it was actually it was a monopoly. I mean, like... We like we think of Nintendo as an absurd as thought. like like Coke and Pepsi or Reebok and Nike, but it was Nike did not own ninety-five percent of the market, even no. if they were the leader. Coke did not own ninety percent of the market. So this was crazy. Um and so I can kinda see like, all right, it starts with the guy on a beach, um, he gets into the situation, he's an outsider, through him we can kinda learn about this industry and all that was going on, and then we see Sega's moneyball like attempts to try to change things and see how we got to, you know, took this Took video games from childish playthings to mainstream entertainment, and I had always still wanted to write a book and been interested in that, so I knew I wanted to write a book. And then I was talking to Joan about it, and you know, we were still pretty bummed about the, the dictator situation. And maybe feeling you know, we weren't really actively working on it. I have no together. idea how
0: the movie industry works, but like, was there any scenario where you could potentially have s- approached Sasha Baron Cohen and said, like, buy this from us as the basis for your movie?
1: If we were more established right? Got it. Or if we had, you know, representation like that we have right. now. Right, But no, I mean. I'm guessing actually, he wanted to, to write To be honest, at movie. that point, if we said something, they probably would have not even wanted to look at it because of fear of like a lawsuit. Of oh, like, interesting. Oh, well, we showed it to him and right. he stole this. and Right, right. Uh, which is what I would do if I was him. I wouldn't want to be involved in right. that. I wouldn't um, want to be tainted. Yeah. Yeah. And so. I was um, talking to Jonah basically about how during this time off from working on these things, I was like, I found like this, I had no idea all these things were going on behind the scenes. I had no idea that Nintendo like had a monopoly and there was an antitrust lawsuit and that they basically threatened retailers that if they didn't carry their products, they would like, oh, your next shipment would go missing and that Sega, you know created sonic from scratch and that he originally had a girlfriend named madonna and he had fangs like all these crazy things from our childhood like how did this get made like how did these things get made um and i was basically telling him about you know like the narrative and how i was going to do this book and how maybe there's like a social network like movie in there and then he said and um he came up with the idea he's like oh we should do documentary and i said oh i hadn't even thought of that that could be a good idea and um That and I basically thought, well, the documentary doesn't take anything away from doing a dramatization or my book. In fact, it probably makes it better. Like, I loved Moneyball and the social network enough that if there was also a 90 minute documentary version, I would totally love that. And that would probably also help market the feature film and vice versa. So I was like, it's like like
0: the uh, ESPN OJ special and the People versus OJ special. Yeah.
1: So I was like, you know, some people. Have you even asked me, like, oh, are you worried that the documentary will cannibalize the book or whatever? I mean, no. I mean, I think the total the opposite is totally true. Yeah, right. But um, no, and for it,
0: someone who's interested, whatever their first exposure is. So let's say you, you read the book and then if you're super into it, you're just going to want to rapidly consume whatever there is. And then also, you know, watching a whatever two hour documentary is a lot more. Uh, it's less of an investment than reading a book so I almost feel like it's like a gateway drug right right like I feel like when someone's into a topic there's almost no amount of content that could be too much
1: yeah that's kind of our th- as long as it's quality content and there was a lot of quality stuff and then and as long as I had the book I felt good because you know when you're making a two-hour or 90 minute documentary or a 90 minute movie you're um that's you can only tell a certain amount of the story and i knew that the book which you said like ended up being 550 pages um like i needed a version that told there's no such thing as a false story but at least told
0: a lot more a lot more of
1: it so that you know what tends to happen in movies is characters get condensed and a lot of the unsung heroes get forgotten and i'm sure that I mean, I know for sure that there's people, unsung heroes in my book, that, or people that say again, Nintendo, that whose names aren't in the book, or things that they did that were important aren't in there. Um, but there's a lot more of them, and at least you can see how the dots connect. And you can't always do that in film. So, so I thought like, oh, that's a great idea, Jonah. And and then also, you remember, we were very unsuccessful. So we, this was just like an extra um, egg to put in a basket. Like, what are the chances that someone will actually buy a book from, you know, a publisher will publish a book by me who no one's ever heard of or make a documentary with me and Jonah who have made this flying scissors movie or that someone will actually want to make like the f- dramatization version of this. Like we thought like just hedging your bets. Yeah. I was going to do the book either way, even if that meant self publishing it. But if all these other things happened, that'd be so awesome. And so um, the one of the big turning points was, you know, in addition to spending two years interviewing these people and learning about the story, it's it is a business story, and I picked up a lot of business lessons. And Sega, um, th- uh, you know, a big reason for their success was they just their scrappy, innovative attitude. They, it's cliche, but they really always turned lemons into lemonade, and that's kind of what you have to do when you have one tenth the budget of someone else, and, um, and, and like, so you know, so it's a lot the of, story
0: of every great underdog. Yeah, is the incumbent always assumes that there can't be a real competitor, right? And by definition, the the underdog or the competitor doesn't have the resources of the incumbent, and and that dynamic has just been played out again and again and again right. over history.
1: And um, Malcolm Gladwell will try to tell you that being an underdog, therefore, is a good thing. Right, I think it's a dangerous lesson. To tell <laughs> um, but anyway, but but yeah, I mean, these people. These people who shaped our childhoods, um, not just Tom Kalinske, but people like Al Milson, who was their marketing guru, and um, Ellen Beth Van Buskirk, like all, you know, these people were personal inspirations to me and role models in a way, and also changed the way that I went about marketing the book and the confidence that I had with reaching out to, you know, more people and going on with my career. And so one of the things that Sega did really well was um, realize that they had a much smaller budget than Nintendo. They could not compete for kids because Nintendo owned the kids market from 6 to 14. So they were going to go after teens. And instead of trying to pay um, big name actors or well-known people, they were kind of going to get in with like the MTV generation and also do a lot of promotions with like people from like Saved by the Bell and Blossom and like these teens. And, you know, basically Al Nilsson summed it up nicely to me. He said, like, we're going to borrow the cool or we're going to pay some amount to you know pay a a smaller amount and so is the nostalgia kicking in for at some point here when you're doing these interviews like no i have a cold heart uh, or, at least, or at least when i do the interviews i don't killing me you can't think about that like yeah well um but anyway so
0: <laughs> no because for me it's 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 a very i mean this happens in throughout one's adulthood but you know sort of unveiling these things that as kids we just had no idea about, right? And and um, and some of that means exposing things that maybe you wish you hadn't known. Other things are things that you, even if you'd known, you wouldn't have been interested in as a kid in the first place. But then the other thing is is how that sort of mixes with your personal memories and feelings about that time and whatever, and and it, it just must be interesting to sort well, of. Oh, it's definitely interesting. To time travel to that world as you're going through this process um because the thing is you were not a business adult at that time you were a kid and so right you're you're hearing about it now from a bunch of people that were adults then yeah but your own memory of it is, is a it which lens. is very interesting
1: and also very different on this book where most of the people for vr are my age um and so anyway so i learned from sega um you know when nobody knows who you are it definitely helps to be in business with people who others do know or at least might um, have similar sensibilities and so i literally googled uh celebrity gamers seth names seth's name came up it said he loved like nintendo games i asked my manager to send my treatment to him and his company i had had a general meeting with that company before like absolutely like the lowest level meeting so it wasn't like oh i had not in, but at least I was like, oh, we, I met with them. Like, can you just send it to them? Send it to James Weaver, their creative executive. We have, he's a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, definitely did not expect anything to come from it. This is literally
0: just Googling like yeah. celebrities that like gaming.
1: Yeah. And my manager, who's the person I thank first at the end of the book, my confidant, the person who made my career, Julian Rosenberg, he's like, yep, great idea. He, he's also a person that kind of like Paul, where he's, he, if he doesn't know something, he's like, let's figure it out, let's try it. He's not like, no, you know, I want you to, Blake, you should be focusing on screenwriting, not books. He was like, all right, if you want to write a book, we'll figure it out. Um, and so Seth and Evan responded very well. I ended up meeting with them um, in January of uh, maybe maybe 2012 or maybe 2011. I don't know. I ended up meeting with them, and it was great. We met for two hours. Jonah was there as well. We talked about the doing a documentary and adapting the book into a feature film and uh, – and later that day, they called back and said that they wanted to do all those things to that same day. Yeah, that same day, which is that's crazy, crazy to me because yeah. I've never met with the decision maker before. I always met with the lowest person who's like, "Oh, it's a great idea. Right. We'll be in touch." And right. i we we'll have are. five
0: more meetings about yeah. it to get there. Yeah. Wait, what was that meeting like? I mean, are are you were you like a, a Seth Rogen and and Evan Goldberg, right? Yeah. Uh, fan, like, of all their movies, like, of all their stuff, like, were, were you there purely just in the mindset of, like, I'm going to pitch this and whatever? Or were you also sort of like, holy shit, I'm sitting here with Seth Rogen?
1: Um, the, I, it was the most um, holy shit I'm sitting here with a celebrity moment that I've ever had and thankfully have not had again. But there was when he. Oh, okay, so I'm a huge fan of. Seth, I loved. You know, at that point in his career, he was. Um, you know, he had done Knocked Up, Freaks and Geeks. Um, so shockingly, he's our age. Even though he shocking. looks much older, and I was like, "Oh my god, this guy's writing and directing the stuff." And um, and then they and starring and yeah, everythinging. And they had just uh, Seth and Evan, are childhood friends, and. Um, they bonded over video games, so it was a great conversation. But they had just done that movie Fifty Fifty with Joseph Gordon Levitt, yeah. which I thought was a fantastic movie with a terrible title. But like, I was really impressed. That they, these guys known for doing dick joke movies, did this really serious subject matter that was dealt with so beautifully. That was had a lot of laughs, but it was never played for laughs. And I was like, oh, if you know, these guys could, you know, like they wouldn't make console wars about like, you know fart jokes they would actually want to take this seriously like they and are this is artists
0: before after S- Seth played Steve Wozniak
1: so a, year, a few years before got it um, and but but anyway so we walked in the room reeked of marijuana I was like all right this I guess this is an interesting thing and so um, so Seth walks in and I uh, for like I, I, I froze for a couple of seconds I, I had the thought of like, oh, it's the guy from the movie. Oh, so this is a movie. Oh, I wonder what my character does next. And then pause, pause. And I was like, oh, I, I, I have to like do something. And then <laughs> I like didn't stand up to shake his hand. And like, but, um, you know, fortunately, I, I've I mean, I to. Yeah. I think, but I think that's part of the reason too that why I try to shut off like any fanboyism or nostalgia stuff. Like, right. like when I talk to Mel Brooks. Before and after, I was like, "Oh my God, Mel Brooks! I love Mel Brooks!" But when I talked to him, I was just like, I, "I, literally cannot imagine what talking to Mel Brooks
0: would be like." Yeah, I just can't. I can't I get into actually, like a, a
1: different zone where it's like I'm just talking to anybody and I want to hear their story. Right. I think that I mean it's like a defense mechanism, or it's just like a, a survival mechanism. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Seth and Evan called back that day. It was a Thursday, and they're like. And my manager Julian called, he's like, they wanna do it. I'm like, do what? He's like, Oh, they wanna they'll help with the book and they wanna do a feature film and they want you guys to direct the documentary and all this stuff. And I was like, Oh my god, my life just changed. And then like three days later, I was back at my commodity job and I was like, Oh my god, I <laughs> thought my life had changed. But anyway, I stayed there for another year as we hammered out like the details of you know, was Seth and Evan going to star, or was Seth going to star in this? Were they going to write and direct this? Were they just going to produce it? Did they want to put money in themselves? Did they want to raise money? Uh, they were also directing their first feature film at the time, the This Is The End movie. So they, like, yeah. went to New Orleans, and they were just MIA for, like, three months, which is totally understandable. But I was like, no, right. this is the Hello. biggest thing in my world. Come on, guys. But, you know, I, like, I would have waited years for them, because they were the perfect partners. Um, and then things really accelerated once Scott Rudin got involved, who's like, he was, you know, he's a famous producer, um, just won. He's an EGOT winner. Uh, he just won another Tony. Um, and he did the social network and Moneyball. And I was like, yep. oh yeah, it's the perfect right, guy. That's, that's your guy. And he's um, amazing. He gets stuff done unlike anyone I've ever seen before. And then... We actually sold the film rights of the book to Sony before I even wrote the book. Or before I even sold the book rights to a publisher.
2: That's
0: um, crazy. So wait, so just so I'm saying, So you're in the process of writing the book. Yeah. You talk to Seth and Evan. Yeah. They become... They they buy the rights or they just want to partner with you? Yeah, like, they
1: just want to... Like there was no transact i guess you could say like maybe it was like a shopping agreement we didn't actually sign anything but it's like there's no money they changing.
0: are the ones that were able to reach sony right to get the actual deal right. in place and then
1: sony was thought like they read at that point i had a book proposal ready to go to publishers like it was like an 80 page thing with like 50 pages of sa- examples of the writing hmm. and an outline um and they read that and they thought it sounds like a good project we're going to um, you know, in order to do it, move forward, we have to make a deal with you, like the author. we got to make a deal with Seth and Evan. It's like everything's contingent upon each other. Um, and it was funny the way I found out because I knew that Scott Rudin had gone into Sony. And, uh, and my manager, Julian, said like, oh, it seems to have gone well. And then I remember over the weekend, like a couple days later, there's a website that keeps track of which domains are purchased or something and someone and this and this website reported like oh Sony just bought 18 domains of like consolewarsmovie.com consolewarsmovie.com oh and and a few people texted me they're like um oh, or like that's insane they said like oh man the Sasha Baron Cohen thing happened again i was oh, right. like no this they're time not. this right. is right. me <laughs> i'm
0: sasha baron cohen <laughs>
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but and it's interesting you know going back to kind of like the idea of this all happening before I actually wrote the book. You know, uh, an obvious question would be like, why? Like, w- what did I have? Like, I hadn't written anything. And right, it was,
0: they could have just said, Yeah, this is an awesome idea. We should go do it.
1: Yeah. And what I had, because in a lot of entrepreneurial things, you know, you want to make an asset out of these things like it was really it was the contacts but at that point uh, i was the person who had interviewed a hundred people already a couple
0: of years into the research phase right it was like
1: about a year in.
0: right but i mean that's a shitload of time to be spending
1: right but anyone else could do that research except that i had made these contacts right. i was the one that had a relationship with tom kolinsky and maybe he would have worked with someone else but he trusted me and he also and i had these stories recorded and um, so anyway, so, but like, you know, I, I, noticed that when I was in with the meeting with them and I brought a list of the people I interviewed, like that was very impressive to yeah. them because it was like, all right, he's the guy, even if he's the worst writer ever, he's got all this he's stuff. He's got the that, stuff. That is no, but
0: obviously you're selling yourself short. I'm sure that was a piece of it, but also like any early stage investor investing in a, uh, you know, founder, uh, ultimately they're investing in the people. Right, right. right. there, I would imagine that they have a lot of projects like this where they're sort of like partnering as opposed right. to being like the primary right, folks right. on the project. And so the idea is it's like, okay, we believe that this guy can go do this and do it right, you know? Yeah, but but they didn't have that much to go on at that point, right. uh, so I mean, yeah, I'm sure they were like, okay, he checks out, he's got these contacts, and yeah, they made that, you know, mockumentary was pretty good. And, like, you have these sort of, like, credentials. <laughs> I'm pretty
1: sure that part with the mockumentary didn't happen. <laughs> you, like,
0: hid that from them. Yeah. Um, no, but in other words, ultimately, something about that sit-down must have just
1: convinced them. Yeah, no, but you make a really good parallel. Like, in my mind, the sit-down after I got over the embarrassing, like, oh, my God, I'm in a movie. Right. So the wrong It right. was it's like, weird when
0: that guy didn't want to shake my hand, but then
1: it was fine. Yeah, yeah, like, 75% of it was, like, I am going to tell you over the next however long this meeting lasts, and fortunately it lasts two hours, like, why this is the coolest story ever and why I can't get enough of it. And 25% was like, I'm going to show you why I am the best person in the world to tell it. Um, and, you know, obviously it worked out the well, way And, it and that
0: last piece, I think, is the key, right? Because it's, I mean, you can even hear it in your voice as you're retelling it now. I'm sure you have sort of retold this overview of console or so many millions of times, but you can see physically that you are, passionate you about the story, about just the coolness of it and sort of
2: yeah.
0: how you know you discovered sort of this world that existed. And I'm sure they saw that too. And again, using sort of a startup analogy, you know, when when thinking specifically of like VCs evaluating startups, but it also could be, you know, founders trying to find a co-founder or whatever. Um, it's 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 why it's not just like, Oh, I like this team or I like this person. They seem competent, but why is this the right person to do this idea? Right. So it's not just like, this is a good idea and the team seems solid. Cool. There has to be like a perfect match as these are the people, the best people on earth to bring this idea to,
1: I think it's so important. And I think that's something that I see a lot with the new book with, with virtual reality, with Oculus, um, they did such a fantastic job of assembling a team, and also to me, it seems like of the best people, but even if not of conveying why this is the best, you know, of persuading people that like Palmer Lucky is this visionary founder of the company, and he was doing something that no one else was doing, and he has this passion, and that's been borne out in my experience with him. And that Brendan Arib is this great guy who knows how to, um, you know, create. Middleware and get developers involved and build an ecosystem and all these things and it's like these ingredients and they found
0: right I mean I haven't read I haven't read the book yeah, yet uh, right. as 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 no one has but like from what I understand of sort of the origin story right that that they really assembled sort of the dream team because VR was it's hard to remember this now because now it's like such a buzzword yeah. um, but. A few years ago, when was Oculus founded?
1: 2012.
0: Right. So, I mean, it's not that long ago. So, five years ago, I mean, Maz is two years older than that, which is crazy, you know. <laughs> um, and and so, my understanding was that they basically dug up, you know, you sort of, it, it actually is reminiscent of sort of, you know, your the 90s sort of, you know, adventure movies that I loved where it's sort of like, you know, like, let's round up the old crew of like yeah. you know th- like who's still around that's working on VR like <laughs> you know like well like I think a really good so way to think so, about like these living things. in a cave somewhere he hasn't been seen since 1993 like let's bring him out you know like yeah and, and that they found who are all the people that are passionate about this who are the experts um, and obviously you know it wasn't just we have this idea but it was and when they and when they did their Kickstarter you know yeah I remember that because. Honestly, like everyone else, I was sort of like VR again. Like, well, yeah. You know. I mean, for
1: listeners, like, it's hard to remember, and this is a challenge that I think my book will face. As I predict, you know, as I am clearly betting on VR and that it's going to keep being more and more mainstream. Yeah. It's like it, it, you know, Palmer even told me the other day that in his mind VR was in the same category as, as time travel. It was like, ooh, that's cool, cool sci-fi thing. <laughs> yeah. Never gonna, that's not a real right. thing, and that's kind of what people thought of. It was like, yeah, it silly. just didn't
0: seem like something. F- actually feasible. And I think what was so interesting about Oculus is that they were basically saying like and to me they represented I don't know if they were literally the first but the, the first notable one that of the sort of new wave of tech companies like since then, you know, there's a flying car startup. There's like a, you know, a real hoverboard startup. Right. Like there's all of these sorts of I'm sure there will be a time travel startup, you yeah. know. There's literally a go to Mars startup a a very well-funded famous one like these things that not even decades ago just even single years ago were were this sort of you know fan fantasy kind of uh topic are now like no you know what like technology is actually really good let's go build that thing that used to just be uh, science fiction
1: yeah and i think that when you're dealing with those kinds of situations, uh, you know, as I sort of learned from looking at what I, certain things that Oculus did right, it gets to what you're saying with like rounding up the people. Like I, in my mind, a lot of times, and even with Sega too, it's like I imagine like Ocean's Eleven. It's like we need to get yes. the demolitions expert yes. to do this one specific thing, but to be the best guy at that, or yes. to be the guy we can afford. Yes, and not only from like a management CEO standpoint is that important. But when you're dealing with VCs and when you're dealing with you watching the Kickstarter video, when you're, whether explicitly or implicitly being like, well, wait, why now? Or why these guys? And why
0: these guys? To me, that's the question. To
1: answer that question without saying, hey, here's why us. But to actually fit into your message where it's like, well, then the next thing we need to do is do this. And of course, so we got this guy to do it. I always talk about this,
0: especially, you know, uh, you were briefly a business student. And so like (laughs) when I'm working with, with the students up at Columbia, I always sort of talk about how there's this weird I don't know what it is. This, there's this phenomenon where people think they can just start tech companies. Anybody. And there's like, "Oh, I have this cool idea for an app. I'm just going to go do it." Right? Yeah. Um and I always y- you try to think of other analogies in other industries like, "Hey, you know, I think I'm going to leave my commodity trading job and uh, be a concert cellist." It's right. like, "Oh, that's cool, man. I didn't know you played the cello." It's like, "No, no, no, I don't play the cello." Right. It's like, "Well, what like what are you talking about you know right. um and and in that case that's okay some people are just the manager of the band even right. if they don't play the instruments but you still have to get, eventually get people to play the instruments right, right. you know
1: yeah uh, i mean that's fine if if you're really into the concert cello and you're like i'm gonna devote my life to that you're like oh you don't play but your plan is like all right i'm gonna put together this right group or we're gonna i'm gonna somehow Monetize is like some yes, efficiency, it is, but right. like it's not just you know, there you want to put together the specific experts that or the people that are capable of executing. Yes, again, identifying
0: a great idea is not necessarily enough to get there. In fact, it is it's absolutely not, not enough, enough, right? <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is not sufficient to achieve that goal. Yeah, so w- when you think about VR and AR, and, and obviously, there's a lot of hype right now. Um, Although it does feel real, it's just sort of the the timing seems ambiguous on when it's going to hit. Yeah. Um I mean, how do you imagine it sort of playing out? So I'm not talking like hundreds of years in the future, but but let's say 10, 20, 30 years in the future, not just the, the sort of initial push, but when it when the dust has sort of settled a bit. You know, you can think of if the iPhone came out in 2007 and now 10 years later, we have a pretty good idea of what it means for billions of people on Earth to have smartphones. But right. you really couldn't have known that exactly 10 years ago. And in fact, nobody did. Right. Um, so I don't know if the clock starts today or starts five years from now, but when it's when the dust has sort of settled, what does a world where with mass adoption of VR look like?
1: Uh, something I think about a lot. Um, I mean, you're certainly right that I don't think most people, uh, you know, except for the people at Apple or BlackBerry or whatever, you know, th- th- nobody really necessarily envisioned that trajectory of what was going to happen. But
0: Definitely not BlackBerry, I would say.
1: Yeah, but, <laughs> but the iPhone, the BlackBerry, these things all did replace something. Mm. You know, even going, you know, I, like even going back to like the car, it replaced the horse. Like, so it's so even though it was something completely new and revolutionary that you have to condition your audience to understand it did have a why go this slow in a horse you know you still then have to build the roads and stuff but um, but that's not necessarily true of VR and it's it also you know so in my mind it, there I always thought of it as very similar to the personal computer to the PC revolution of like the late 70s and you know with the emergence of Apple and obviously Apple was like um, this startup darling and became um, a hobbyist and uh, consumer favorite. But the market was really small. And that's not to like diminish. Apple, obviously, was very no, successful. No, not at all. Right. But like, if you think about um, Apple's, quote unquote, success in the late 70s and early 80s, which it absolutely was, but I don't know about you, my family didn't own a personal computer, computer until, I think, 1996. So it took 16 years after. Right that to actually make computers so mainstream and part of it is because like you could see someone back then be like well what would you do with it
0: yeah yeah because there was nothing to do with that's it why question. would anybody develop
1: right. stuff for it because it doesn't exist right and so i think that's a lot more of like what you're seeing now with uh you know people do make comparisons to like mobile how like oh mobile games the best games were the ones that don't just port stuff from like consoles but actually develop specifically for a touch screen and all that stuff which is true but like, it's going to take some time.
0: Well, there's steps along the way, you know, like a, an example I always use is that the, the first um, sort of TV shows or, or really f- use of film was footage of people recording radio shows. Right. You, you know, exactly. And or and they then, did like
1: stage plays. Yeah, yeah exactly. And like,
0: exactly. And so I think that is always the case with any new medium um, where you're sort of creating a facsimile of whatever the previous medium was and then feeling your way to whatever the real capabilities of the platform are. Um, And so So when you think about VR VR, is it because now, you know, there's VR, there's AR, there's mixed reality. There's again, to me, these are all sort of buzzwords, but they're significant in the fact that I also think today people think about VR as an activity that you do. You know, it's completely immersive. It literally cuts you off from the outside world it sort of is an indoor sport, Mm -hmm. you know, do you think of that as sort of a separate line of thinking than something that could be with you all day, every day? Like, like or or is it all part of the same story?
1: I think it's all in the end part of the same story, um, which is not my story because my story really is mostly about VR and that really immersive experience and how at the, you know, at the end of it, you see how that all helps lead to this mixed reality AR basically how AR and VR are largely the same in the end. Well, like, uh, and and I think that it's like you know if you look at um, Facebook's F8 conference from a year ago, I was just gonna ago, say,
0: and it shows their like ten-year roadmap. Yeah. Mobile VR.
1: And it ends with a pair of glasses that look like the ones that I right. have on right. here, and it does AR and VR, and that makes sense because if the, it, it's all about creating three D virtual worlds, and so if it's Realistic looking enough. What's the difference between completely immersive and us standing here yes. and we're both seeing uh, Mario and Luigi dancing? But like, yeah. you know, it looks real to us. Um, Sounds amazing. I mean, and I think the thing, like, I don't. I I've thought a lot about what the future might look like, and and I don't know exactly what it's going to be. Though I do believe it's going to be like that convergence. Um, I think one big difference is just the way that we think about physical objects and especially like display screens because I can't imagine living without my laptop. But what do you actually need the laptop for if like, you know, you can project something that looks like a laptop and when you type on the air or maybe there's some sort of haptic feedback mm-hmm. that's like telling you, you know, you know here's where the pretty keys are. Like, you know, if you're getting all that, Maybe a laptop doesn't need to be a thousand dollar thing you buy, but it's a one dollar app.
2: Right, it's, and that's it's really a, weird. Like it's a, a, a television is probably a better example in app it's, purchase or something. You know,
1: you and I can just throw up a television over there. We can both watch it, and it's as good quality as a, and a two thousand. dollars Of course, television.
0: even that is interesting because th- these examples you're using are, are almost um, themselves facsimiles of an old medium. It right? Is, would you actually want a virtual TV? In a VR world, because maybe watching a TV itself right. is a limitation that we can't envision what right. that, that might look like. But but point taken. But if you take that sort of ad nauseum, I mean, do you need clothing? Because you could just have virtual clothing, you know, right. and you could walk, everyone could walk around naked. But if, as long as everyone's got the goggles on, right. everyone's got the clothing, you know, the women maybe don't need to put on makeup because you have virtual makeup and right. you... You know, and and so if you keep going, of course, like, do you need to do you need to be here in person to record this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you I think that's the big thing that changes is
0: like exactly because if everything, even including us, could sort of be transposed into any other environment, then the whole idea of physical proximity, whether it's objects or people or, or, you know, physical spaces or buildings all of that sort of seems unnecessary in a way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really Oculus, um, their original, their mission was always VR and and beyond gaming, but gaming was the first phase of that. But but Facebook making such a big investment in Oculus and in VR and bringing that reality to life is so hugely important. Um, Investing $3 billion to buy them and then billions more to build this. You know, because you know, among the many things that Facebook is and does, it's, it's connecting people, it's a, it's a communications platform. And so if you and I were able to do this from our own homes, but still feel as present as we do now, um, or 99% as present, that could really change the way that people interact. Not even necessarily for the better or for the worse, but it's just different. And like, you know, to bring it back to my grandma again, like, you know, if I'm gonna have a weekly call with my grandma, It's better that I see her in person, or feel like we're both sitting down and talking, and uh, and even like the thing that I look forward to with VR um, is this idea that I think of as like just doing nothing together. Because what I love to do with my friends is just not like just hang. We're just maybe watching TV or just sitting there. Yeah, it's not like we needed an an activity to be doing. I just want to be in a cool environment with them. Maybe we're walking. You and I are walking through the Mushroom Kingdom (laughs) and interacting. And then that also kind of gets into like why I have trouble predicting where it goes because the part that i'm not i think all this is very possible if companies like um facebook and google and microsoft and apple continue to make these investments that we need in the infrastructure and in the content and and then this building this ecosystem but the part that i'm really i don't know enough about frankly and it's not really within the purview of this book is the is the artificial intelligence aspect Mm -hmm. like what does it mean if I'm like, oh, I really like Paul Kennedy, but sometimes I hate that he's like a Mets fan and also I don't want to go see him. So I just make a virtual AI Paul and then I'm like yeah. hanging out with you every day. Why do I? I don't even need to see you. I can, I have my virtual Paul that remembers things and can read my emotions and respond to me. And so that's the part that I'm very, uh, you know, I don't know where that really takes us. Yeah. That's,
0: that's pretty interesting I mean I think one of the hardest things to predict is the intersection of various trending technology and so you have right. things happening in AI and machine learning and machine vision you separately have the sort of VR and AR you know research that's happening you have the sort of you know brain interface stuff that Elon Musk is sort of popularizing and chances are that each of those is not going to just sort of grow up in isolation from one another right it's, it doesn't it, it might be siloed now in sort of the research phase but they will inevitably intersect in different ways and and those sort of sum is greater than the than the parts um yeah it, it is much harder to predict i do think it's interesting you know thinking about virtual representations of people um also in so far as uh i had i had uh this guy, Sean Cheng, on the podcast last week, and he was talking about you know technology that exists today where you could basically create a virtual representation of someone, maybe not through AI, but where you could essentially create a version of Paul and just write a script for what I'm going to say. And using machine learning, it could recreate my mannerisms and my voice. Right. And you could end up with a video that looks just like me, and I'm saying things in this exact voice. right, And it would be would be pretty hard to know if it was real Paul or fake Paul. And, of course, if you go out a few years from now, it'll be completely indistinguishable. Right. And so it's, it's going one, be a
1: huge problem with fake news oh, stuff.
0: Insane. If We think fake news is bad today where it's just literally people writing bullshit in yeah. text.
1: Well, imagine like, when you have audio recordings of Hillary Clinton that never really happened. Yes, or video <laughs> recordings. <laughs> yeah, of, or video. Of, I mean, yeah. it's,
0: it's truly insane. But then to take it a step further to what you were talking about, it's it's one thing for a video to get passed around and be like, did Hillary really say that, yes or no? But now you could have an interaction with someone to learn later that it wasn't them. Right. In other words, in your example you're creating a fake Paul because you like them better than real Paul. But I'm saying like evil Paul could show up f- today. Right. And you wouldn't necessarily know that. And and thinking about that in in the context of business interactions or diplomatic you know, and military interactions or, right. Or, or even just, you know, um, like today, you know, if you, if a hacker wants to get your password, they send you an email that looks like it's from Gmail and says, Hey, can you enter your password here? But imagine instead of your mom showed up and was like, I, I need to log into this thing. Do you remember what the password is? <laughs> and you told her, and then, you know, like again, right. basically everything that's happening today just sort of seems like the plot of a
1: nineties movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, like, I, I, did you ever read the book *The Circle* by Dave Eggers? No. Should uh, I? Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's it was written a few years ago, and I remember reading it at the time, thinking like, "Wow, this is the first dystopian book." It's not fully dystopian, but it was a dystopian book that's like not only conceivable, but it's most of it's like happening. Wow. Um, and there was there was just a movie that came out with Tom Hanks and yes, uh, yes, and I, Hermione Granger I, exactly. Um, and and you know it it depicts like a very google-like um don't be evil open transparent silicon valley company and they the fic- fictional company kind of made their success through a product called true you which was like a singular um identity that translated through everything on the internet like it was like your wallet it was also like your verified account and i remember reading the time like well that's kind of like a weird premise but that was just kind of like the background but yeah. now that's i kind of see that like i if oh, totally like i will only interact with True Paul, like true people. So I'm only, so maybe I'll interact with evil Paul, but it won't be verified or I'll know. So, you know, yeah. and, and that's like, I might be in the minority, but that's kind of something that I wish for now with Twitter. I think that if someone's gonna, since there is so much conflict on there, I don't want to have conflicts with fake people, which I feel yeah, like I'm anonymous all people. the time. Right. And in every internet account I use, uh, like whether it's Reddit or, Forums, I always use my real name because to me, I want to stand behind this. I want this is me. Yeah. Like and I'm this author, so if like so if you hate what I say, then don't buy my book. Have you ever
0: tried making a fake user? Like I've I've created parody accounts and I'm really bad at it. (laughs) I'm really, really bad at, at misrepresenting myself, even in a you know, trivial, like purposefully you know jovial way that's really funny i'm i'm terrible
1: at it no i haven't maybe i should but anyway like i feel like that's kind of where we're headed like because when you know fake news with different narratives and spins is still one thing but like when news comes out of a of a leaked tape there there should be a mechanism to be like this is an actual for an authentic Recording a original recording of right. this person's voice or not. And we're going to want something that's pretty quick. And we're going to. And, and for an in person interaction, I mean, the hope is you can take off the goggles. Right. right. I mean,
0: right. But, but the problem is that, and, and we're already seeing this, but I think there's sort of two things that technology empowers, and, and you're, you find this sort of uh, thematically just sort of permeating. One is um, asynchronous interactions, yep. and one is remote interaction. And this could be with other people, this could be with brands, this could be with content. You know, A simple example is if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to watch it when it was broadcast, and now you can watch it anytime. So that's asynchronous. Yeah. You know? um, if you wanted to see a performance, you had to be in the theater physically, but then television allowed us and film allowed us to be non, uh, you know, to remotely consume content and right. then you just sort of follow that out and out and out and and communication platforms are the same way you know the phone is remote but synchronous right um, texting but the text is exactly asynchronous. is asynchronous i think that's
1: why a lot of people prefer it because you are not on the spot yes. unless you want to yes be.
0: and so even when you think about virtual reality and, and so the remote piece is clear thinking about how asynchronous uh you know consumption um and creation uh play into that it's a little hard to to imagine what that means um but that seems like it's a lot harder to verify right now if something was pre-recorded you can't verify with your own five senses you only exists in the world similar to just watching a video clip today like that already happened i'm not there so all I have to go on is, is this. And, and you recommended another book to me recently, which I, I only just started. You recommended to me because I tweeted something along the lines of, if all of the news that I read, you know, the so-called fake news, like the New York Times, the oh, Washington yeah, Post, yeah. And, and, uh, and the like, um, and, and, you know, what I consider sort of mainstream real news, yeah. um, Wall Street Journal, whatever, like, if that all was fake, how would I even know? Right. Like, what frame of reference do I have as just an individual? I'm not spending my life doing independent investigative journalism to verify right. the stories I'm reading. How would I even know? How do I even know um, that, that I'm not just subscribing to some you know, larger right. conspiracy as some people literally think I'm doing? Right, right. Um, and, and that's a very strange thing to really think about. And it seems like that problem's only going to get worse.
2: Yeah,
1: it is. I mean, look, I mean, we can end by talking about that piece that I sent you that was like, this is how fake news happens. And it's a story about um, Palmer Lucky, the founder of Oculus, um, and a controversy stemming from a political donation that he made for $10,000 in September. Um, and I think that a lo- it was a political contribution to a pro-Trump organization. And that alone probably would have led people to feel a certain way about him, especially at the time two months before the election. But what was reported was absolutely not reflective of reality. And then a very inaccurate initial report with a very sexy headline that wasn't even really backed up at the piece, but that's how these things work. Over the course of 48 hours and exacerbated through social media, it just morphed into this complete fiction of Palmer Luckey was funding... A racist, hateful, misogynistic troll army. And really what he did was fund a pro-Trump organization that at that time had put up one billboard and their plan was to put up things in the real world, had nothing to do with the internet. Maybe you can argue they would have done these things. My research and interviews with them say otherwise. But regardless, it but was regardless, reported as if the point. he had done this thing. And it really changed the way that people thought about him. Uh, a lot of people called for his firing and he you know, to have people call you a Nazi strangers and cu- long-term customers and they regret these things, that's crazy to me. And these are all, or not all, most of them are mainstream outlets, n- not the New York Times. But yeah. um, like, so I think that um, I think that it's completely terrible what President Trump does with calling these outlets fake news because he doesn't actually explain why they are fake or what they got wrong. But I can, I think I kind of see what he thinks is fake news, where you take a kernel of truth and then you just pop it however you want it. And then after one person does it, another outlet reports on it and they want to make their story get more clicks. So they're going to make their headline a little bit more risque. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and, you know, in the course of, as, as somebody who's researching this and doing interviews with these people and paying close attention, I I see that this is inaccurate and fake. Um, you
0: were able to independently verify the authenticity, right? But and most people don't have that sort of access,
1: and and most people shouldn't. Like, um, I and think for, it's a, and readers, for this one
0: story you had it, but for every other story you don't,
1: right? right. And readers, they should they should tr- like they should be able to trust the, the, these media outlets. It, sh- it should not be incumbent on them to do research, but it sh- shocks me and scares me how much these reporters are putting out stories that are not true um and their defense like when i've reached out to them and been like why did you say this this was this is actually not true you're a re- reporter that i tend to like and then they'll link back they'll tell me like oh this place reported it
0: right so they're just piggybacking and piggybacking right. and probably the first one is just someone that was reading random people's tweets like, you know, these aren't verifiable sources at the beginning of the chain, and then they all just sort of clone each other. Right. It's like and, a copy and, of a copy.
1: And, like, the, the craziest thing to me is I, you know, I, I do feel a sense of, like, one, you know, feeling like there needs to be a crusade to correct this, and I have this unique example, and I have seen prior to that a ton of stories about whether Palmer Lucky or Brendan Areeb, the CEO, or people that I am actually talking with on a daily or weekly basis, and what is being reported is not accurate. It's close enough, but it's not accurate. And if, if that's happening to the one experience that I know, how often is that happening with other experiences? And I, I, that just oh, really it, it scares happens. me.
0: I think it can be assumed that it's happening all the time in every story. I mean, that to me, that's the assumption you should have. And I've, I've had various, you know, much smaller scale brushes with fake news even about myself. And that is as close as you can get, right? Where it's like, yeah. I am reading this and I know that this isn't true. And so it makes me think that when I read something about someone else, they are probably sitting at home thinking... This isn't true. Um, This is exactly the sort of tweet that will get you in trouble, by the way. Like, maybe President Trump is right about fake news sometimes. Quote, Blake Harris. Um, Yeah. You know, and because. Well, but my big
1: problem with President Trump in that regard, aside from it just being like um, kind of a condescending dictatorial like phrase is I would not really object to that if he provided examples and said here's i called the story fake news here's six things that it has wrong here's what right. actually right and 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 would i d- differentiate between him and someone like Palmer Lucky or anyone else whether it's you um he is a public servant so i do think that the onus is on him to correct it i don't of necessarily course. think if
0: something's like no the the like it's not the fair. media doesn't exist to like put checks on me right they but they literally exist to put checks on the government
1: right um, so so i do think that like You can say, well, why should he correct it if it's wrong? But it's also, you
0: know, he picks and chooses and clearly there are partisan lines where he says, this is real news, this is fake news. It's so transparent. Um, But imagine if he said, you know what? No, all media is fake in the sense that it is completely overhyped. There's such insane spin. There's no sort of um, accountability or regulation around fact checking. You can print something today. Tomorrow retract it. There's no penalty, but yeah, that first no story will That's carry on doing. in perpetuity. And this is true across every news organization that I can think of, all the way from the Washington Post to Breitbart News or whatever. Right? right? If you said something really and and gave specific examples and whatever, you know, to me that is that sounds like a real problem. That sounds like something that actually everyone should agree is a problem. And the solution's unclear, right? Because So what? What do you want? State-sponsored media that claims to be truthful? You know what I mean? Like that. That also sounds like a terrible idea. And so, you know, when you have a free press that uh, are in the, you know, run by private citizens for profit, um, it almost seems like this is inevitably where you end up.
1: Well, it's it's inevitably where we end up because you said it's for profit, which it totally is, and no one's willing to pay for news. I mean, when everyone, after President Trump was elected, everyone's saying, oh, we need to go back and read about 1930s Germany. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how accurate that word is or not, but I'm never, that, I always encourage. Do you listen great. to the
0: Waking Up podcast at all, Sam Harris? I recently started. Okay, that's a whole rabbit hole, and we can, we can talk about it, but, <laughs> but there's a recent episode called The Road to Tyranny, and um i forget the name of the guy but he he just wrote a book basically about yeah it was like 20 yeah like how how, the... how a democracy devolves into into a, a dictatorship and and he wasn't explicitly saying that's what's happening now it's simply to call out the fact that that how easily that can happen and and he was citing these jewish newspapers from the 1930s I said, you know, even the, in Austria, even though Hitler was elected, obviously he's not really going to do all those things that the Nazi Party says they're going to do. We have a constitution, right? We have this, we have that, and, and and even reading it, I'm like, yeah, but that was different, you know. And right, right. and uh, and the media plays such a vital role in that, and you know, you sort of would wish that even though it's for profit. There is a certain level of integrity and sort of you know social good that comes ahead of that profit, and I don't think it's necessarily some people in a boardroom going like ah oh, ah oh, oh, fake news. It's more that you know if you're an author and you are incentivized to just write as many things you can, put the clickbaitiest headlines that right. you can, you know you don't have time to check your sources because you're supposed to write ten articles today, and it seems like a bunch of other news outlets are talking about this story. And they seem reputable, right. and you're like, "Cool, I'm just going to reword this in my own word and cite a couple of tweets and right. and get out the door." Um, you know, whose fault is it ultimately? That reporter was basically hired and is again given a quota, and their incentives aren't aligned with, you know, being truthful or thorough. Um, and so,
1: well, but I, I was just going to make the point that I. It's always great to learn about history, and I'm sure there's a lot to be learned from 1930s. Whether it's just um, it's you know, the rise of tyranny, right. or you know, some people think that the liberalism and Obama the past eight years was a di- was a version of tyranny. So, so it would be good to do that. But I always think like let's also go back 30 years, 40 years, and learn about yellow journalism because look up anybody listening to this, look just Google yellow journalism, and it's described as since over-sensationalized basically clickbaity journalism um that stories are not reflective of what the headlines are yeah. and if you look at the last time i checked on google it was like this existed in the 18 late 1800s um early 1900s no it exists yeah. now too it exists it's, all they the talk time. about it like this edit. and it probably existed a
0: long time ago i mean people right. love sens- sensationalism they love gossip it's funny like you know maz works with a lot of different news organizations or media organizations um and we represent a lot of celebrity gossip you know and i would imagine that celebrities are are just thinking like yeah like we've known about this for a long time because we've been dealing with this forever but the phenomenon of of wanting to consume that sort of sensationalist headline that's a very old thing it just seems like it's being applied more and more to consequential well, it's because of I think stories.
1: it's like, I, I don't remember exactly what John Stewart said, but he talked about like it, that the media is like an information laundering scheme. And it's that like, <laughs> all right. I hadn't heard this. When we, yeah, I mean, that was like, you know, all those outlets that you described, those aren't the ones I don't read those things, but I think my mom does. And I think that you kind of know what you're getting when you're reading them, whether whether they're true or not. But like, you know what the purview is. It's If
0: there's a natural human tendency to um, see conspiracy where there is none. Yeah, it seems anecdotally like there certainly is on every end of the political spectrum. Right. So um, Obama, right, is, is a conspirator with, you know, Iran. Right, right, right. But then, you know, Trump is a conspirator in this way. And like everyone, there's always some bigger plot. You know, um, I wonder if that's just something inherent to human behavior, or if that's a relatively modern You know, sentiment. I I really have no idea.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious. One thing that I personally do on almost all my stories that is actually usually you're taught not to do this is I share the pieces in advance with the people that they're about. And
0: do you ask for their feedback?
1: Absolutely. Because I've had people write things about me that if they just shared with me in advance, I could have corrected things. And the danger, of course, is that I will um, either like impose my will and say, like, this I don't like the spin, but the, the reporter doesn't have to do anything. Well, and then they the they other danger choose, is that they can right. miss out, that like by during this time when I'm looking at it, someone else will publish a story. Mm-hmm. Those both seem pretty crazy. At least you know. Yeah. And but and like sometimes they're very simple mistakes. Yeah, it's like oh, I wasn't born in Kisco I was born, or I grew up in Chabgua. Exactly. Like why would you? Like I know that easier than you. Right. Wouldn't you just? But
0: each one well, of those details undermines the authenticity of yeah. the bigger points.
1: And that's why I always do it. I don't necessarily make all the changes if if they're not biographical. If it's like, well, I wouldn't say it's a failure. Okay, maybe I won't use that word. Or maybe I will because I
2: yeah in the context of failure.
1: But I feel like I have nothing to lose except maybe they would get wind of this early and try to stop the story. But even in that case, the the long-term gains that I get from having a person do a pass, basically the most expert person on this topic because it's them – i think that that's also valuable. it must
0: buy credibility let's say you want to interview that person in the future they're gonna be like that guy was cool because he let me read it and no one else does that i mean there's just I think that's
1: true but i think that that shouldn't really be a good criteria because no. then that actually you know also if i wrote a nice article about him that person's also cool and that's you don't mm. want to fall down that path of like that kind of journalism but well there is
0: something interesting you send to them you say i'm just giving you an advanced copy but like this is going out tomorrow yeah, either way. That's what I, and like, then if they do. happen to write back and say, Hey, actually I live in chapcoin I'm on Cisco. You're like, okay, cool. I'll make that correction. Instead of openly saying, here it is. What do you think? You know? Um, but you're still and giving I also them think heads it's up.
1: Maybe it's the same reason I like to do the, how this can made thing. Like, I feel like people should have the chance to defend themselves. Like, right. If it's, um, you know, whatever quote you said that you're jokingly take out of context, like, Oh, I can understand what Trump means about yeah, fake yeah. news. Why would I know that people say like they try to get a quote from me, but like instead of all you want me to do is send you two sentences that you're gonna throw on your article, but if if you actually take 15 minutes for me to say, like, well, here was the context of how I said that, so right, your article seems really insincere that like Blake slams the news, like, no, so you can do you know, it's more work for you to fix it, yeah, but yeah, why but would right, you not
0: want a good to? journalist is supposed to try to get the opposing side? A lot of times, you'll see in the story, we reached out to Blake Harris. For comment, but yeah, did, that's such garbage. Because I see that know, too like,
1: with the Oculus guys. They reach out like an hour before. These guys are at work. What, right? How are like, they? Oh, in we tried. And then the way, and then a lot of times the way they frame it is like we reached out to this person, but they refused to comment. Yeah, it's like well, what? they didn't refuse. They were at work. What are you right, talking about? Right. They
0: didn't see your email till tonight or whatever. Yeah. That's 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 sneaky. That's bad. It's it is funny. Um, just thinking about this is sure. So even if you comment, you send them a. Those two sentences, they ne- they edit it down to like three words, and you know, even your rebuttal or defense ends up being out of context. Like it's you, almost not worth it. You trying to add the context just adds less context or different, a you know, wrong context, and it's something I actually thought I I, I was critical of Obama uh, tweet by Paul Kennedy. Like, <laughs> you know, unfollow. Um,
1: Paul Kennedy thinks Obama. I Muslim. I
0: always worried about Obama. Um, in that, even like the debates that he would have with McCain or, or then with Romney or, or Hillary um, back in the day. And you could tell that the question was framed in sort of like a black or white, A or B. Are you for this or are you for that? And everyone would sort of, you know, the other candidates were always like, the da-da-da because da-da-da, like some little sound. And he would say... Always something like, well, you know, it's a nuanced issue, and there are many right. shades of gray, and, and 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 you know, he was it was a it's not like a unique criticism. He, was, a lot of people say, is too academic in his approach, or you know, right. Well, uh, I
1: think in the end, probably you and I appreciated that because most things are really nuanced. Well, oh, exactly. Whereas the, the Trump thing does is, a great job of saying, yes, nope, it's a yes, positive, it's a don't need to back it up, It's and, a, and that's where I was and that's going a better with sound it.
0: <laughs> that where we are right now, not only with Trump, but in general. Might be sort of a swing of the pendulum in the other way. In other words, where it's a backlash against the nuance. It's a backlash against the context. I don't. I don't need all that. I don't have time for it. It's too, you know, soft or, or wishy-washy. I just really do want someone that says it's a. Trust me, it's a. And and uh, and I wonder if that's sort of inevitable, where the pendulum just sort of swings back and forth between those sorts of modes, um, not necessarily just between black and white and gray, but in all ways, you know, where, where um, people just get sick of whatever the the status quo is. And anyone that thinks this will just be the new way forever always ends up disappointed. And the 2016 election was like a very clear example of that, you know, miss expectation. Right. Um, but that in maybe less you know, dramatic ways that it happens all the time. Um, like, I like the nuance. So I was really taken aback that other people didn't. But maybe it's sort of inevitable that if you feed the system in one way, it goes back, which is to say that maybe all the crazy fake news and whatever that we're experiencing now, maybe there is sort of some pendulum swing in the other way. You know, all the junk food from when we were growing up to the organic yeah. movement or something, you know, um, I don't know. But I think a combination of the internet, you know, capitalism, and all the deregulation that is currently happening, uh, to me, it sort of feels like actually what we're experiencing is is the uh, an unintended consequence of the internet, which is just that everything is amplified.
1: So everything's amplified, but it's also everything's free. Mm. Like I mean, hopefully. I don't I don't necessarily believe that free market cures everything, but no. you would hope that it's like, oh, the media really made a lot of mistakes or didn't report on Trump a certain a right way or a fair way or whatever it is. You'd hope that they would learn from that. I feel like people are not learning the But lesson. what's
0: the lesson, right? Because the most lesson- news organizations are making more money than they ever had. They're getting more traffic than they ever have. Again, their incentives are are... Aligned with doing what generates revenue, and so, and that's not necessarily advertising revenue. In other words, subscription revenue, whatever it is. If if you if your goal, you know, if the New York Times' goal is the same goal as Netflix's goal, like you're going to end up with just a bunch of great entertainment in both cases.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I guess I didn't. The dis, I I feel like the, obviously the trust in the media is lower than it's been in our. Our lifetime, I I thought that that was hurting some of these companies negatively, but I haven't really like looked at balance sheets. I mean, I feel like there there is a rise in more thoughtful thinkers getting like a mainstream audience through direct platform like Sam Harris mm-hmm. or Dave Rubin or people like this yeah. that that I don't know are really left or right, but they're they're trying to they're trying to have a di- basically people who want to have a dialogue and not yeah. condemn
0: fact based like. You know, yeah. I don't even know what to call them. They're not I celebrities. I think it's like perspective-based.
1: Like, yeah, they will bring on people with different opposing views. They don't think that those people are evil or having different views. No, they're
0: trying to have a and, literal conversation with as as little spin as possible. Um, and the amazing thing about, for instance, a podcasting platform is that the the distribution is completely free and democratized in other words this podcast has the same exact distribution as for instance the daily from the new york times which i love by the way um my this we don't have the same audience for a variety (laughs) of reasons but like it's certainly not because there's some barrier to entry on the distribution side um which again is good and bad because it amplifies all voices it democratizes all voices for better or worse and so um even the voices that are not telling the truth they have the same benefits as, as the truthiness. Um, anyway, wow.
1: Yeah. Good. Good. Nice. Uh, exhausting. Good
0: thank stuff. you for, for, uh, for coming by. And as always, um, fascinating stuff. I feel like I, I'm going to walk out of here like just, and be texting you like, well, what about this? Like,
1: yeah. You know, um, yeah. I don't I mean the media thing though like, I guess maybe you're right that it's doing better than ever, but let's end by talking about another situation. Like there was the guy PewDiePie. Yeah. Um, and he, there was, uh, you know, articles or a situation where people thought he was being anti-Semitic. I've not looked into the situation enough to offer much
0: analysis. Yeah. He had some fairly overt anti-Semitic like, things. And, and he's it know, was like number reported- one celebrity sort of number one homegrown celebrity on YouTube.
2: Right. But
1: then the point is like, this story was uh, reported in the Wall Street Journal, at least from what I understand that I have looked into. It's like, they did not really speak with him first. Like they're, they wanted to um, maybe cause a reaction, but maybe it's deserved. But anyway, the point is like PewDiePie has f- 44 or 50 million f- subscribers on YouTube. The Wall Street Journal has like, 2 million readers so <laughs> if they're not like he's more powerful than them and he yeah. actually fought back and used that leverage again I don't know if he it was a good fight for him but like I think in the end maybe he got kicked off YouTube or, or at
0: least like advertisers pulled out or there was some tangible but like, consequence
1: but it, it probably wouldn't be as big of a consequence I mean he has leverage in that and yeah. that's if, if legacy media is not seeing oh wow this random person who maybe did something wrong or maybe didn't Actually, is trusted by a lot more people than us. Yes, like that's the, what I'm talking about. With well, that's, like, that's interesting. Eventually,
0: it's uh, it's the democratization of trust, right? It's true. It, it, it's and maybe that is it's definitely an, true
1: because we don't believe in experts anymore. Everyone's opinion is equally valid because, right. like, what I notice is that people use a few outliers and base that as the norm. So, if there are some articles that are actually like completely false or inaccurate not just spin but like misleading people now believe oh well that's how every article from the new york times is yes. So if you mess up once yes it's everything yes well and if alex jones like, is right once then of course he's always right yes well and that's really weird to me that again it's
0: it's doing away with the nuance it right. can't be this and that you can't be right sometimes and wrong other times you can't be you know pro-left sometimes but critical of right. The left, other times, um, it, it, it's this all or nothing mentality like which side are you on anyway, right? Um, and and that whole thing, uh, I don't know, it's like a feeding frenzy, and and people love
1: it. I mean, people I do not love it,
0: people love it. They they turn on CNN and just leave it on in their homes all day, listening to the same people say well, the same wh- exact things over I and mean, over and over. The and real over problem, and
1: over again. I, rather, I think most of the problem is really television news because that's not news even if you think the new york times is fake or breitbart is fake it's at least a singular 500 word story that's there or not but then when you bring up that story every 10 minutes on cnn get this guy's commentary that's like because a lot of the things the outrage i see on twitter is this story is not getting covered enough or the story is getting covered too much and right. it's not outlets They're t- it's not uh digital outlets. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's television. Well, TV's still,
0: right, rules supreme in that regard. But I mean, but again, the incentives, if, if a sitcom and the news have the exact same incentives, again, I, I believe what you end up with is, is optimizing for entertainment in all cases. I mean, but, for but that, instance, but I mean I, I've wrong. met producers at Fox News that clearly say like, you know, we aren't going to report something that's false, but we will present it knowingly, you know, but we will present it as sort of uh, as sensationally as we possibly can um and and to me you know it, this is really random anecdote but one of my first jobs after college was a paralegal at this giant law firm and I'd considered being a lawyer which I, I decided against very quickly i knew being a paralegal would suck but i thought maybe if the lawyers seemed cool <laughs> then that anyway yeah. But what they ended up doing is realizing that I, that I had a background in design. And so I would design the PowerPoint presentations for the courtroom. This was like patent litigation, like nonsense, IP stuff. And my presentations were like super polished and well-designed. And I was thinking how unfair it is that, you know, you don't just go into the courtroom and present like, here are the facts and the other side says, here are the facts. And then there's a decision, but that there's this presentation layer where I had cool animations and all the fonts were really nice and the typography and and all, you know, and then, and then maybe the opposition's deck, you know, was just like using the boring PowerPoint templates or something. And of course the, the lawyers, I, I inquired about this and they were like, yeah, but it's the same as, as the presentation of, of, a of, you know, closing argument. Uh, it's a performance it's not just a written statement right or something or a bullet point list you know and that that's part of the process and i think it's the same with the news in other words it's the presentation layer that ends up being where where it falls apart even if it's not overtly lying or misrepresenting facts it's you know you can call it spin you can call it perspective you can call it context um just choosing which headline to run you know, could completely change the the Absolutely. context. Um, and again, all those incentives are to get people to watch or get people to click or get people to read, get people to come back again, get people to share, uh, because those that's where the business incentives are. And it, it's really hard to imagine how to incentivize the businesses otherwise, um, other than... People deciding we will pay for quality, we will pay for integrity, right. we will pay for non-sensationalism and someone carving that out as a new model, as a new incentive. Um, and, and I'd like to believe that there are organizations like The New York Times, the Washington Post that are, that are specifically doing that. Um, but they're all guilty of it to some degree right. because ultimately they still need to draw people in and they're competing with the junk food You know, I don't know. Tricky, tricky business. That's why I like to just provide technology platforms and not actually create content. Give the tool. Yeah. All right. Well, this
1: feels really fitting for the longest day of the year.
0: Wow. Good call. June 21st. Longest podcast for the longest day. Um, Thank you, Blake, seriously, for uh, for taking the time. And um, hopefully, uh, we'll chat again soon.
1: All right. Sounds good, buddy.
0: If you are still listening right now, it has been almost three hours. And so you seem like the perfect type of person to subscribe to this podcast. So please do that. And I'll see you next time.